Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 2. It is November 4th, 2006, and this week we have for you a special, expanded edition of Banal of America Audio. What does that mean? Essentially, what it means is that this week's guest, Paula Harris, gave us such a lengthy interview that we were going to split it up into two weeks. But, as fate would intervene, I will be in Las Vegas next weekend for the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4, and therefore we didn't really want to ruin the momentum of a great interview by breaking it up with a week hiatus in between. Plus, we really wanted to give you guys something to tide you over during that off week next week until we return on November 18th. What it all boils down to is expanded edition of Banal of America Audio this week, over two hours, the bulk of which is with this week's guest, Paula Harris, author of Connecting the Dots, Making Sense of the UFO Phenomenon. Paula Harris has done some amazing research. She has personal connections with many of the great names in ufology and really likes to take a big picture look at the UFO phenomenon that I can appreciate, plus puts an international twist on it, which is another one of my favorite aspects of ufology. So suffice it to say, I am a big Paula Harris fan, and I wanted to get her on the show for quite a long time, and we finally managed to get it done here for Season 2. Just to scratch the surface of what the interview is like, we're going to talk about Paula's early influences, J. Allen Hynek, Dr. John Mack, Colonel Corso, Monsignor Corrado Balducci, how she got into the UFO phenomenon, how her research evolved, some general big-picture observations of the UFO phenomenon, Exopolitics, why Paula seems to be more interested in that realm than what you could call classic ufology. We also talk about Italian-slash-European ufology versus its American counterpart. That's a fascinating discussion, and it's ongoing throughout the interview. It keeps coming back up as points that sort of sidebar off of our conversation. That's really just a brief overview of what to expect here in this edition of Banal of America Audio. Just a wealth of material and a ton of ground covered. Plus, following the Paula Harris interview, we have two additional segments at the end of the show. First, the debut of Banal of America Audio listener feedback. I was talking about this at the end of the show last week. This week it debuts. Definitely stick around for that. And then, after that, we've got an 8-minute-plus excerpt from the May 27, 2006 edition of Banal of America Audio with Ryan Wood. Ryan Wood is part of the team behind the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4. He's going to talk about how the conference started, who will be at the conference next weekend in Las Vegas, and some of the stuff that they're going to be talking about. Definitely stick around for the end of the show to hear about the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. That's where I'll be at next weekend. No Banal of America audio next weekend. I will be on location in Las Vegas. We're going to talk more about it at the end of the show today. It's a jam-packed show. We've got tons of stuff. We've got the giant Paula Harris interview. We've got listener feedback. We've got the excerpt from Ryan Wood. Before we kick off the main course of this week's edition of Banal of America audio, let me give you a little bit of background on Paula Harris for those of you who are unfamiliar with her. Paula Harris is an Italo-American photojournalist and investigative reporter in the field of extraterrestrial-related phenomena research. She is also a widely published freelance writer, especially in Europe. She has studied ET-related phenomena since 1979 
and is on personal terms with many of the leading researchers in the field. From 1980 to 1986, she assisted Dr. J. Allen Hynek in his UFO investigations and has interviewed with many top military witnesses concerning their involvement in the government truth embargo. In 1997, Ms. Harris met and interviewed Colonel Philip Corso in Roswell, New Mexico, and became a personal friend and confidant. She was instrumental in having his book, The Day After Roswell, for which she wrote the preface, translated into Italian. She returned to Roswell in the summer of 2003 for the American debut of her book, Connecting the Dots, Making Sense of the UFO Phenomenon, published by Granite Press. Because of her international perspective on ET-related phenomena and her work with Dr. J. Allen Hynek, Paula has consulted with many researchers about the best avenues for planetary disclosure with emphasis on the big picture and stressing the historical connection. Her website is www.paulaharris.it. Let me spell that for you. P-A-O-L-A-H-A-R-R-I-S dot I-T. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on August 7th, 2006. Paula Harris on a special expanded edition of Been All of America Audio Season 2. Welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. I want to welcome as my special guest, Paula Harris. She is a investigative reporter. I like to call her a geo-ufologist because she really has... Uh, her finger on the pulse of international ufology really impresses me a lot about that. And I had the distinct pleasure and honor of working with Paula Harris at the X-Conference 2, where uh, she had Monsignor Balducci with her, and Monsignor Balducci was giving the keynote address there. And if it wasn't for Paula Harris, I never would have got in the door to even meet Monsignor Balducci, much less uh, interview him. And she could have been like, who are you, guy? Get out of here. But she was very welcoming and very helpful and opened the door for me. And I'm really psyched to have brought her to Ben All of America Audio to talk about her work and her career as a researcher. And she's also the author of Connecting the Dots, Making Sense of the UFO Phenomenon. And her website is paulaharris.it, and that is spelled P-A-O-L-A-H-A-R-R-I-S dot I-T. Paula Harris, welcome to the show. Well, thanks a lot, Tim. It's really a pleasure to be here, and it's great talking to you again. Yeah, yeah, I'm really psyched. Uh, I wanted to get you on last year. It was so hard to touch base and stuff because you're flying all over the place and everything. So now that we're both having some downtime this summer, I figured it'd be great to have you on for the show for Season 2. Well, I spend nine months out of the year in Rome, Italy, as you know. It's a lot easier for me to work out of there sometimes. And then I spend three months of the year here in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And while I'm here these three months, I... I you know, run around the country a lot, covering stories and doing conferences. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's start out uh, with your background, your bio. How did you become interested in the UFO phenomenon, and how did you begin your investigating career? Well, you know, it's, it's just all serendipitous. When I saw the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1979, I had, like, an emotional reaction to the end of the film, you know, where... Uh, um, Francois of Truffaut meets, or, you know, he, he greets the aliens. And all of that exchange brought a real emotional reaction. So I began researching the film, and I found out that Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was an astronomer at Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois, was a consultant with Spielberg. And what I decided to do was I needed to talk to him about what was in that film to see if it was really true. And uh, so I was in Boulder, and then what happened was that I happened to be attending a wedding. This is where the coincidence part comes. In Evanston, and I stopped by the Center for UFO Studies. I don't know if your listeners know, but Alan Hynek was 
the head of Project Blue Book that was funded by the Air Force, and then he went out on his own and started CUPOS, the Center for UFO Studies. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when I walked in the office, I never thought I'd see him, and there he was. I mean, he came out from around the corner with his pipe. Uh, you know, his famous, you, you always see pictures of Alan with the with his, the pipe in his mouth, and he, he just came around the corner and asked me uh, who I was, and, and I told him my background, and he wanted me to begin doing some Italian translations for him. So for six years, well, from 1980 to 86, while he was alive, I worked with the best of the best. He was my teacher, my mentor, and he took the subject extremely seriously, was a scientist, and uh, in, and I began to see that it was an international phenomenon. And that's how I got started. And then when I moved to Italy, people knew that I had worked with Alan Hynek, and they started asking me to write for magazines and to do investigations there. Awesome, awesome. Um, so you really got taken under the wing by, like you said, the best of the best in, in Alan Hynek. What was that like to, uh, to really like study under him because he was such a giant in the field? Well, it was great, you know. In my book, I talk about him because he was a very human person. You know, he he basically loved opera. He he read everything. What I didn't know was that he meditated a lot. That he thought the paranormal was connected with this. You know, I was just such a nuts and bolts person for such a long time. I mean, I, first of all, I've never seen a UFO, and I've never you know, had any kind of contact experience. So for me, I was like really skeptical and I, I didn't believe all these people's stories. I used to go with them at places here in Denver, especially to listen to people's stories. And I used to think they were crazy. And I used to say, do you believe that? And I used to watch him and he had such a wonderful way of dealing with these people. He never would make any comments. He was extremely compassionate. So I just learned from him just to listen. And, you know, it was just, it was just another world. It was it was a very professional, very compassionate. Uh, it was information gathering situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what now? You were with him towards the end of his life. What was he thinking uh, then? As as the UFO secret was still quite a secret, and um, was he was he disappointed? Was he was he hopeful for the future? Was he like this is never going to happen? What kind of uh, what kind of perspective did he have on that? Well, he was really frustrated, and, and, and that's a good question because I remember him at the end of his life. I mean, I remember him sitting down one day just looking at me and saying, I wonder if I'll ever know. I wonder if I'll ever, why don't they just come out with it? He says, I, I wonder if I'll ever know the truth before I die. I mean, he was he was very, very uh, passionate about wanting to know what was going on. And yeah. I think he had bits and pieces of it. Uh, and and I guess that's the whole deal. And my book is like that because it's 26 interviews of top-level people, you know, everybody yeah. from Linda Howe to David Icke. And, and, and what I thought when I was putting the book together is, can people just put the, 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 the scene together? Can, can we just figure it all out? It's a big puzzle. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and one, another uh, very important person that you became affiliated with was Colonel Corso. Um, and you seem to uh, have developed quite a bond with Colonel Corso. So can you talk a little bit about him? Because a lot of people have heard of him, and a lot of researchers maybe have met him before, but you spent a lot of time with him, and you and him were really good friends. So uh, talk a little bit about Colonel Corso some. Well, you know, Tim, the thing is, there's another coincidence. Everything's serendipitous. Well, when I had to cover the 50th anniversary of the Roswell, uh, you know, crash and 
in uh, 1997. I didn't have a place to stay in Roswell. I came in from Italy. I flew directly in from Italy. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't even know what Colonel Corso looked like. I didn't know anything about the book. I knew nothing. I just knew I had to get this story and send it to my boss right away. I was writing for Notiziario UFO at the time. And I went into the press uh, uh, office and I, at the museum there, and I, and I asked. I said, well, where can I stay? And they said, well, there's no place here, but if you want to look in the phone book, and I opened up the phone book, and I put my finger on the first place, and it was the Sally Port Inn, and I called them, and by miracle, they had a room for three nights, which is what I needed, and the room was right next door to Colonel Philip Corso. Oh, wow. So, I mean, right there, I began looking at I didn't know it until I got there, and then I had gone to the press conference, and, and you know, I got to speak to Corso, um, and he looked to me and he said, you know, my whole history is in Italy. He said, I basically was the head of intelligence in 1944 to 46, and I, and, and I called my boss in Italy and he said, invite him, invite him. So when I met Colonel Corso, not only did I have a chance to get an exclusive interview because everybody wanted one, but he, he was right next door. So he came in, he knocked on my door at about 7.30 in the morning, and I could get this interview yeah. uh, But it, because it was right there. Yeah. But then I was able to invite him for a major conference in Italy where I think he did the most talking. Now, in Italy, he came twice, and he... It, the deal was that he would come with his grandchildren and his daughter-in-law. And so when they, he would come, he wanted to show his family where he worked uh, during World War II. Mm -hmm. And he was thrilled to go back to Italy and bring his family. And uh, so, you know, the personal life I had with Corsa was he would bring his grandchildren and his daughter-in-law, and we would go around Rome. We would go to restaurants. We would talk. And he even showed me where his office was in Piazza Venezia when he was head of intelligence. Now, he would tell me a lot of stories that were real. He could show me the places. I realized I was talking to a man who was telling the truth, and he was telling the truth also about the back engineering of the Roswell artifacts. And what shocks me the most is the lack of, of you know, uh, coverage that was done on the course of story because The Day After Roswell, for me, was the single most important book that has come out in the last 50 years from a very credible person talking about the fact that not only, yes, there were UFOs, but yes, there was a crash, and yes, there were bodies, and yes, there were artifacts. And so when I, we were, you know, together at that time and in you know, the next year, in 98, when he came back to, for the conference, the international conference at San Marino, which is located, you know, in, near northern Italy, uh, that time I spent Easter with him and, and was able to talk to him at length. He, he, what Colonel Corso has to say is ever so important and ever so real. If people would really understand this, there would be no more ridicule. There would be looking at this thing seriously, and people would be able to connect a few dots. But what happens all too often, and i got to say this, is when these whistleblowers or these people that are great testimonies come, come out, yeah. there's... There's a lot of debunking going on in this country. We don't do that in Italy. I mean, there's, there's none of that because we met Corso. He was passing out, um, you know, all kinds of documents to different people, doctors and people who would come and see him. He would discuss things in detail. And, and so, so many, so many people met him. None of those people ridiculed him. 
None of those people debunked him, and he was of great interest to all the people that met him. It's a completely different kind of atmosphere here in this country. Yeah, and what do you um, – and since you knew him so well and you had a lot uh, – a chance to talk to him at length, what do you think of the, the Corso critics that exist here in America? How do you respond to them? Because, you know, there's a lot of them, and, and, and he's – they had that feature on him on the History Channel where they sort of tried to debunk him. And, and how do you feel about all that, the, the, the overwhelming criticism and, and, and investigation into Corso that goes on here, sort of very cynical look at him? Well, that's a good word, cynical. The whole UFO phenomenon here is cynical. Uh, it's a big joke. I mean, in our conferences in Europe, it's filled with scientists from people from the space agency, from people who, who are writers, just all kinds of people that are serious. Nobody laughs. And everyone has a, an intelligence symposium there, a discussion, a kind of scholarly kind of thing. I've been watching the television here, and I've been watching the History Discovery Channel. I mean, it's almost like the rule. You have to show who, well, you, the, the evidence, and then you must get at least four debunkers. Yeah. It's half of one and the other half of the other. Now, that confuses keeps the people in total confusion. If that is what's supposed to happen, if people are supposed to be kept in total confusion, they've succeeded very well. And I have seen the program on, on uh, Colonel Corso. He would be appalled because one of the problems with Corso is that it, since it's a book from Roswell, a lot of the debunking goes on because I really believe that commercially the UFO field is about also competition in books competition in, uh, you know, co competition in, in, in relating things. Yeah. And, and the people that tend to debunk, if they were scholarly in their approach, all the Roswell people should have sat down with them and exchanged stories. Everybody that's written a book on Roswell should have been in one room exchanging their ideas, their stories, and their research. That would have brought the secret out. Not that you start debunking Colonel Corso without ever having a conversation at length with him. What appalls me so much about the researchers are when they go to debunk, they don't know the people. They just haphazardly throw out statements, and they do not meet these people. They do not have conversations with these people. And since Colonel Corso is no longer with us, he's dead. He can't even defend himself. So, you know, I find myself, since I speak about him at conferences, you know, uh, I find myself confronted with the people that are trying to look for the truth, that are listening to the icons of ufology, spout what they think is the truth. And, and I would like, I guess, what, to end this, I would like to say, people are intelligent. They should read everybody's testimony. They should read everybody's books and they should form their own conclusions without being told what to think by other people who have their own motives. It's one mass confusion with these debunkers. Yeah. And um, as far as uh, Colonel Corso's book, now did you say there was an Italian version of the book that uh, was different from the American version, or uh, am I confusing this story at all? No, no, you're right. Actually, The Day After Roswell was co-written by Bill Burns. William Burns, and it, what, it, what it was was, you know, rushed, and his son said this, was rushed uh, for the, the Roswell opening there, and, and his son said at a conference recently that the colonel didn't even get a chance to look at the manuscript before it came out. So there's a few inconsistencies when you're writing with a ghostwriter when you're writing with someone else. Yeah. 
when Colonel Corso came, so whatever little tiny inconsistencies there are, they, the Americans have made a, a heyday of it, a field yeah. day of it. But we translated the book into Italian. We had the contract to do that. I wrote the preface for it in Italy. And uh, we had from Colonel Corso, you know, diverse documents he brought over. And, and he brought over his notes for another book, his original notes, which is called The Dawn of a New Age. And so my boss, Maurizio Bayata, who appeared at the Laughlin Conference this year speaking about Colonel Corso, uh, he uh, published the book, Dawn of a New Age, in Italian, and you can find it in any bookstore. And those are his original notes. Nothing has been written by anyone else. It's, it's much more detailed. It goes into a lot of uh, what was happening in that time because, you know, Colonel Corso, we all know this, believed in two things. He believed in time travel. He thought the aliens from Roswell were us from the future. He believed in time travel. And he also believed in um, the fact that uh, the jumps in technology have been alien-driven. Now, these are two mass uh, ideas. These are two incredible, uh, you know, theories or, yeah. or facts. And if anybody was doing a scholarly study of this, they would actually start researching in that direction. The time travel and the back engineered technology. And and um, is there something holding back the translation of that other book into an English version? I'm not going to go into detail about that because it's such a confusion. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, I, I can't go into detail because it's, it's an up and down situation um, uh, with the Corso Holdings and the reason why it won't come out. But yeah. the, the, the reason, one of the things that that I will add is that Jaime Maussan, you know, thanks to intervention from me, he had seen the book, and, and uh, he'd seen the Italian book, you know, Spanish is just quite really close to Italian, mm -hmm. and he uh, basically has bought the rights for the dawn of a new age for all Spanish-speaking countries. Now, Italy has it, Spanish-speaking countries has it, it's not here. Yeah. So, I mean, will it be here? I don't know. Uh, it, 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 uh, but even if it's here, I'm waiting for the debunkers to come out of the closet. I mean, it's, it's the thing about the UFO phenomenon that we're looking at that's very discouraging for us serious researchers is you can have all the sightings in the world. You can have all the whistleblowers in the world. You can have all the real material. Even Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14, who's a friend, says he believes that there are UFOs and has spoken about Roswell cover-up. I mean, you can have all the, 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 the verification and people are still going to have this confusion in their minds. Uh, I'm convinced that I don't even know if the public really wants to know. Yeah. Um, and another key figure who you uh, were very good friends with and you spoke at length about at the X conference was Dr. John Mack. Um, talk a little bit about him now, if you can, and uh, what your friendship and relationship with him was like, and um, and your thoughts on his passing and how big a hole that leaves in, in the UFO field. Oh, Lord. I mean, we all love John, all of us. There was anybody that I ever met that didn't love Dr. John Mack. He, he had what uh, Alan Hynek had. He had a sense of listening and compassion that was just beautiful, and uh, people would tell him everything. Now, John Mack came to Italy because uh, I sponsored him for a conference in Florence. And uh, I honestly can tell you that, that I don't touch the contact scenario that much because I'm not good at it. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I deal mostly with, with military and, and intelligence 
whistleblowers with with looking at the putting together other people's you know uh, situations. Mm -hmm. But uh, John is was heavily into the, the the contactees. He never looked at it as abductions. He would he would talk about contact because he he did say to me, and we had this conversation at home in in Rome because he, he also was a guest in my home. I have an apartment near the Vatican, and we'd sit there, and, and he would say to me, you know, Paula, it, it looks like that the, the abduction scenario, the one that where the greys, uh, you know, take people and so forth, has really fallen off, and what's happening more, he says, I'm getting more people that are coming into the office that have direct, uh, you know, downloading contact. In other words, in, in their dream state, they, they get information directly rather than being taken. In other words, downloading. Yeah. Uh, and he said even with younger people that they, they come in and, you know, they get these ideas and they, they're directly downloaded. He didn't look at it as a scary situation. He looked at it as a heightening of psychic ability. And he talked about that at, at Florence. He also said in Florence that our problem was that we looked at what, what we thought was a paranormal as strange, whereas Eastern cultures thought that was the normal. In other words, we had to change our world view about the way we, we looked at different realities, about the way we looked at uh, a, a different kind of scenario that we couldn't, that would, for other cultures was very normal, the Aborigines and Native Americans and so forth, we thought was super strange. And, you know, Colonel Corso had somewhat of the same idea. He said we need to invent a new science to explain the UFO phenomenon, not try to shove the UFO phenomenon into the old science, yeah. which is, you know, logical. I mean, that's just logical. And as far as John, you know, his death, um, you know, when we were in Florence and we were walking around and he wanted to see the Piazza, uh, you know, uh, de la Signoria in different places. He, he's he's like an absent-minded professor. He was like walking off the sidewalk, so I was like pushing him back on. <laughs> and and <laughs> he was like so enthralled. I took photos of him as he was looking at all the statues and so forth. I really believe he was, it was an accident. I think that, I do not believe John was, was killed in it, or there's any mystery about that. I think yeah. he... It, it was unwise that he was walking around at 10.30 alone. I mean, I, he was never alone with us. I, I was always with him or somebody was with him. Uh, and, it, you know, it's unfortunate at 10.30 he's walking around alone, especially when you have to look in the other direction because they drive in the other direction. And, and, uh, and, so, they, yeah. and then it was a drunk driver. So, I mean, the, you know, the, the driver was drunk to begin with. And then the fact that, that you have to look both ways, but in the in the opposite direction. I think that it was a very unfortunate accident. A lot of us that knew him had a hard time with it, mm -hmm. you know, a hard time with it because he left an incredible void. And I've noticed just recently, even on some documentaries, I mean, ridiculous statements like, this is REM sleep uh, paralysis. John would have been out of his mind if he heard these kinds of explanations for the contact scenario. He did too much work, and, and Bud Hopkins has done too much work. David Jacobs has done too much work to be explained by sleep paralysis, the most ignorant thing I've ever heard in my life. Even in the people that are working in it, in this area in Italy, we have a lot of, uh, you know, psychologists will never, ever use that as an excuse for what we call a contact or abduction scenario. Yeah. Um, and uh, another uh, person I want to talk to you about, we had already sort of talked about him earlier, was uh, Monsignor Corrado Balducci. You, uh, of course, um, 
he was sort of his minder at the X conference too, because he doesn't speak very good English, if at all. Um, and uh, so talk a little bit about Monsignor Balducci. Like I said, you opened the door for me to speak with him. It was a great thrill for me as someone who's new to the field to get to meet uh, such a legendary figure as Monsignor Balducci. And you, of course, are good friends with him. So talk a little bit about him and your friendship and how you guys, um, you know, came to know each other over the years. Well, he loved meeting you because you're young. I mean, the young people need to get into this field. And when he saw you, he was thrilled to, to be with you. I mean, he even said to me, it's so wonderful that young people are doing this kind of research. And but because Monsignor Balducci is in his 80s. Uh, in fact, I was talking to him on the phone the other day, and he goes, you know, I'm going into my 84th year. And, and it, it was a little hard, like you said, it, it, because, you know, he had to do a 15-hour plane ride, yeah. uh, you know, from Italy, and, you know, mostly in a wheelchair. And he, he, it was a miracle that we got him to Washington. He was papal nuncio to Washington, D.C., uh, which is like the ambassador kind of a representative from the Vatican. Mm -hmm. And I think it was in the 70s. So he was real excited to come back to Washington. And uh, he's a friend because he lives down the street. I told you I live near the Vatican. And yeah. with with the Monsignor, he, he really wants to know a lot of information. He has uh, incredible archives. He has incredible library. He has incredible. He saves every article, every magazine that has to do with this this phenomenon and the paranormal because, you know, Monsignor Balducci's books are mostly on the paranormal and the devil. Yeah. And, and he's been very important to come out, even on Italian television, Spanish television, saying, no, this is not the devil's work because he doesn't, the devil doesn't need UFOs. He said, basically he said, the, the witnesses, the witness testimony is so powerful, he said, in this field that if they were in a court of law, and we actually come to conclusions with a jury in a court of law based on witness testimony. You know, people are condemned or, or you know, uh, let go or released based on witness testimony. Monsignor Balducci said, I don't understand why somebody isn't taking this witness testimony seriously. It is the most important part of this phenomenon. The witnesses are credible. They know what they saw. And then the other thing that's so important, he said it is not against the Catholic religion to believe that God created other planets and other universes to give glory to, him, to himself. And he said in the Bible that Jesus is called King of the Universe 66 times. Actually, that whole title, and that that title, King of the Universe, implies other the other universes, yeah. I mean, other galaxies. Yeah. And he said it, it. He said also, and he, he, he talks about this, he said human beings are the ones that are the low rung on the ladder because they're still warring as we still know we have conflict. He said they know what good is and they do evil. He said these beings have surpassed this period of primitive, you know, evolution and are able to come to visit this planet, so we must be on the low, you know, part of yeah. the... The, the scale of evolution, so he, he, he thinks he has a certain admiration. He sees it as um, a benevolent or benign presence, and it says, and it's very important for the Mexican, especially the Mexican or the Spanish-speaking countries, because Jaime Malsan, you know, videotaped Balducci when he was at the X conference, uh, that, that, because they're the ones that are having all the sightings right now. I mean, massive sightings over Mexico City of 200 you know, orbs, 200 UFOs. I mean, these poor people, they're confused. So 
when when Jaime Malsan filmed Monsignor Balducci saying it's okay, it's, it is not against your religion to 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 look at this phenomenon as something serious. Uh, it really helped. Yeah. Obviously, you've talked to a ton of big names, and, and you know a lot of people in the field. You've done an amazing job of networking and drawing these people together. Um, the last uh, of the people I want to talk to you about uh, before we move on to other subjects was um, Clifford Stone. You talked about him a lot at the X conference in your second presentation, uh, and you sort of talk about how it's been tough as him for him as a whistleblower uh, to get into the field of ufology because the way ufology always seems to turn on the whistleblowers. Um, talk a little bit about Clifford Stone's story and, and his reaction to uh, the way ufology to turn around on him. Well, Tim, you know, you know how, I want to, uh, how I want to do this, though. I want to talk about the Disclosure Project because I work with Stephen Greer on that. I mean, Stephen Greer, for me, is one of the single most, most powerful uh, researchers that has really brought forth real, real military witness testimony. And uh, he came to Italy, and he and I helped him with, we, we had a lot of pilots that he videotaped. We had military people he videotaped. And the Clifford Stone piece that I showed was from the Disclosure Project. Uh, Clifford, that's the only time he's ever come public, really, where he, he you know, he was videotaped. Clifford Stone, uh, and I know his story because I went there to visit him in Roswell. He lives in Roswell. In fact, uh, during the 98 Roswell convention there, I, w I was invited to Stone, Clifford Stone's house. A lot of people were, because he has a lot of documents there. And the only people that took him up on this invitation was uh, me and uh, Victoria Pacaccini from Brazil. And it's really weird, because the only two European or foreign journalists are at Clifford Stone's house looking at all the material he has. Yeah. And all the other guys are out there just, you know, I don't know what they were doing that night. They all got the invitation, but nobody went there. And we went to his home, and we, see, we saw uh, filing cabinets full of crash retrievals in different countries. His job was basically to be on a, he thought it was a nuclear biological unit, you know, to do cleanup of nuclear, uh, you know, uh, nuclear accidents. Yeah. That's what he thought. Uh, but in 19, he said 69, his first case was Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. He even named the place. <laughs> and what he thought was a, a, an airplane crash, he said he saw, was, was a crash saucer that was in part of a hill. And he, he was sent. He thought they were following him, all his group, but he realized at a certain point he was alone, and he, he was told with a Geiger counter to go close to the crash saucer. Now, he saw dead entities in that crash saucer. He talked about that. But the reason why Clifford Stone did, you know, he told me around eight of these crash retrievals was because when he was very young, he had his own ET experience, his own... Uh, a contact experience, and he, he, somebody knew about that. So they asked him, and he wasn't even qualified to, to join a special unit in the Army. Huh. And so, you know, at a very young age, uh, you know, he said 16 or 17, he en enlisted, and his ability to telepathically communicate was what they were using. And that this idea of telepathically communicating it has, has really fallen over into an awful lot of my... Uh, my stories in connecting the dots. I mean, Dr. Michael Wolf Kruvat also had a contact experience. He also did remote viewing and telepathic ability, just like Clifford. And these people have this ability. So Clifford found himself, uh, you know, 
being present because he telepathically could communicate with these beings. Yeah. And it was also part of part of the military. Now, he thinks that it's time that this come out. He thinks that it's time the disclosure come forth. It is, he, of course, somebody gave him permission to speak, otherwise the man wouldn't be, and somebody gave permission to Corso to write the book. Somebody gave permission for this disclosure. So what we need to look at, Tim, is there is a slow process, real slow, release of information in this field mm -hmm. that's going to probably have to accelerate when we can't keep the secret secret anymore. Now, you say that uh, Corso got permission and Stone got permission. Did they ever, did either of them ever really say uh, who sort of gave them the permission to go public with their stories, or was that something that they didn't talk about? Well, in the Corso's case, the deal was that they had all talked about it in the Pentagon when he worked, and, and it was the last one to stay alive, that the last one, to, you know, to be alive. Which, yeah. And after General Trudeau died, Corso knew it was his obligation. He was the last one to to be able to talk about the back engineering, because this is where he was, you know, dealing with. Yeah. Even though Corso had, had some contact experiences, because in my book, uh, with the first interview that he gave me in Roswell was about contact with an alien. I didn't even print it, because I couldn't. I, in my databank, you know, because I'm so nuts and bolts, I said, I, I can't print this story. They're going to think he's crazy. So yeah. I waited until after Colonel Corso died to print the contact story. It's in my book, Connecting the Dots, uh, about his contact with a being in, uh, in you know, in Red Canyon, uh, you know, where he was the head of the the the, uh, uh, the nuclear missile base there in New Mexico. And the thing is that what 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 all these people have in common? A lot of these people have been contacted, then joined the military, then served some function. Now, if if uh, Clifford Stone wasn't allowed to talk, Clifford Stone wouldn't be talking. Yeah. Clifford Stone knows that he can't go over a certain point. I mean, there are questions that I have asked Cliff Stone, and he said to me, point blank, I can't talk about that. And I say, fine, I have no problem. Yeah. Would it tell me what you can talk about. You know, I mean, there's a lot of the witnesses in my book that say, I can't, I can't go into that. And I, I fine, there's no problem. It, it's, it's really not a problem. What is a problem is the people that really want to know the truth that are totally confused by the amount of debunking in this country. Yeah, yeah. That's a perfect segue, actually, to uh, the next sort of set of topics I want to talk to you about, and that's ufology, American ufology as a whole. We'll get into uh, Italian ufology in a little bit. Um, how? Uh, what's your, first of all, let's just start out with what's your perspective on uh, the field of ufology today um, in America? Well, Tim, you know, it's like I've been in this for like almost 30 years because of Alan Hynek and so forth, and I became very, very dis, uh, you know, uh, disillusioned. And I, what what happened is I met Dr. Michael Sala, who is a college professor, and I myself am a teacher with a master's degree. And when Dr. Michael Sala began to do real research, I mean scholarly type research, where the conversation was intelligent, where the research was deep. I began to go into the exopolitical field and mm -hmm. met well, Alfred Weber from uh, Vancouver, uh, yep. British Columbia, and those two men had written two books on exopolitics, and that kind of changed my whole view. I got out of the, you know, the, what I call the commercial ufology kind of situation where it's still a joke, and you know, the, you know, this 
the, the commercialization of the of the gray aliens with the t-shirts and that everybody yeah. runs around with the antenna and it, it gets to be too much of a, a non-serious situation exactly. the exopolitical became much more serious for me and, and I could fit in there much easier because the conversation and the the seriousness of, of the topic in America, if we deal with it like that, uh, fits my personality better. And then this year, I interviewed the ex-Minister of Defense, Paul Hallier. I, I flew to Canada uh, and interviewed him, and that interview for me is ground you know, it's, it's just groundbreaking because what that deals with is, is a high-level political figure like the ex-Minister of Defense. And he was he was that position during the Kennedy administration. In other words, he was under um, he was what McNamara was for America. Paul Hellyer was for Canada. Yeah. And he talks about uh, not spending you know millions of dollars to support a military industrial complex that wants to shoot at aliens and uses the word aliens and UFOs. And the man is not crazy. The man is very wise. The man has written six books on on economics. He has done his homework. He is a top political figure. And when I did that interview, it was like, a, for me, a milestone. And his, his, you know, courage to talk about, uh, you know, this is a national security issue. And it is. I mean, let's face it. Yeah. As much as I don't believe necessarily that, that what's visiting is hostile, otherwise it would have done away with us a long time ago. Because... I don't. I don't think we're very well liked in the in the galaxy. Yeah, however, yeah. <laughs> however, the fact that the man is talking about this this, this uh, ex minister of defense is a serious, credible person, and we can have a serious, credible conversation. Brought me into the field of exopolitics, and and it took me away from the hokiness of, of exactly. the, you know the UFO, the way it's looked at here. Now, you know, in the, you, you probably want to ask me about Europe. Well, you know, nobody laughs there. We have conferences of 300 people. Uh, the people come in. Basically, they, they tape the conference. They take home the material, and they, they know about all the American whistleblowers. They know about Adamski. They know about Roswell. They know about everything. They do their homework, and they can quote times and dates. And it's like these people are really curious in Europe. The books that are written are great books, and the magazine we put out, Area 51, is actually sold on all the newsstands. Oh, wow. I mean, I mean, I write for, I write a column for Area 51, and people buy it, and, and it's, it's not like, you know, fringe. You know, I've heard somebody say to me, oh, you know, ufology is fringe. Well, there's nothing fringe about national, national security issues. Yeah. You know, there's nothing fringe about visitations from outer space that are real. I mean, there's nothing fringe about that. If, if you re if there's nothing fringe about what happened in Mexico with those those poor military uh, guys that were on that plane and saw the 11 UFOs while they were on a drug bust, and they didn't. The, the government of Mexico releases that film footage. We see it on our six o'clock news. We see it at least four times. And, and because the government of Mexico wants the other governments to know that this plane, this, this jet, saw in the infrared, saw 11 UFOs that were going at high-level speed. And they want, they want help. They want other governments to come forth and say, well, do you have this problem? Because if you have this problem, then we can all sit at the table and discuss it intelligently. So we're looking at it as the 6 o'clock news, and we have our news guy who, who does not make fun of it, 
And he compares actually this footage, and we see the whole footage, 10 minutes, we see the whole thing. He compares it to Hasdalen in Norway. So already the man that's doing the commentary is intelligent. He can, he can name other places where this, where this is happening. Here, when I brought this footage here two years ago, three years ago, uh, people had never seen it. They ne it was never on the news. It was never on any channel. And, and, and they were going, oh, you're kidding. And I go, no, no, we saw this in Europe. I mean, this came from Mexico. This was released by the Ministry of Defense. This is not somebody's research film. The Ministry of Defense gave this to Jaime Maussan. So, you know, other governments like France that did the Cometa Report and Brazil that handed over files to A.J. Gevart, uh, the other governments are, like, really curious, and they would like to work together. And I know the economic community also had some questions uh, on the UFO phenomenon that they're looking at taking seriously. Now, do people in America know this? I don't know. They're watching the History Channel and the Discovery Channel. Yeah. And they're getting so confused about what's out there that, that I don't know if they know this, you know? Yeah, you were getting sort of disillusioned with the the commercial aspect of ufology. Was it sort of like as you got deeper into ufology, you realized that the field isn't one big happy family like you thought it might have been before you got into it? No, it's not one big happy family, and that's another problem. I mean, the people, the backstabbing and the and the negative, you know, the the people aren't working together. As I mentioned before, all the Roswell people should be working together. All the abduction people should be working together. All the People that are interested in crop circles should be working together and not trying to debunk each other. Yeah. Uh, Colonel Corso once said, we don't need to do any kind of suppression of, of the ufology. The ufologists are doing it by themselves. And, and that's true. You know, I just, this is, the, this is the way I feel. I respect everybody. And I really have everybody's uh, interview in my book. People even that I don't agree with. Their, their theory, theory are, I, I interview them word for word, and it's in my book, because I think all the material should go out there, and people should decide for themselves what they think. So I respect my colleagues. The problem is that I'm not sure what, I'm not sure what the intent is. If the intent is just to have a conference and sell a book and, and do, you know, like videos and, and then go home and forget it, then I can't do that anymore because... It's too important a question. Yeah. I have to be in the activist part. Mm -hmm. In the activist part, after having met Paul Hellyer, the ex-Minister of Defense, uh, was, is to teach a serious course. So uh, Dr. Michael Sala has, has put together almost a college course on the history of ufology, on um, the history of the phenomenon, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm teaching two, two courses in that uh, exopolitics uh, um, list, and, and uh, there's kind of a certificate he, that he's developed uh, after that. And, and being a professor, uh, and and you know having it be something that scholarly really does attract me. So I've gone in that direction. I still do conferences in the United States, and I still bring a lot of material from Europe. So people can see how people are treated in Europe. I've got to tell you, people like Travis Walton was put on primetime television 40 minutes, and people thought it was perfectly normal. Nobody was scandalized. Nobody treated him badly. Uh, they they were fascinated with the Travis Walton fire in the sky story, which you know is absolutely one of the best cases of abduction ever. And and you know it's just I'm so used to the seriousness of which how we treat this phenomenon that. That's probably why I'm going in that direction. Yeah. 
you know, even though I just covered the, the MUFON conference here in Denver, and there was a passing of the baton from Schusler, an incredible, uh, you know, researcher, mm -hmm. human being. John Schusler has been the head of MUFON for years to uh, James Carrion, who's a younger person, who is a, a very technical, he's a technical whiz who's doing a lot of good work uh, categorizing and archiving all the MUFON files. So I covered that. I mean, I still do that kind of uh, thing. And when I covered that, I sent that to Europe. I mean, I sent it all over so that everybody in Europe could see the changing, you know, of the guard for MUFON. And I covered the Hawaii conference where um, Alfred Weber, um, uh, Paul Hellyer, Michael Sala, um, Wendell Stevens, uh, and um, uh, Ambassador John McDonald all uh, were present at the signing of the uh, of the peaceful declaration in space. In other words, where there was a declaration made to whoever's visiting that on a citizen diplomacy effort, there will be no hostilities of shooting, you know, aliens yeah. out of the sky. We don't even know who in the world they are or where they're coming from or what the intent is. Yeah. What is your, what's your perspective on being a woman in the field of ufology? Because it's traditionally a pretty male-dominated field. Well, that's a good question because it is hard. I mean, it's been really, really hard from the very beginning. Um, in, in the very beginning, what was happening to me, even in Italy, uh, was that, they, that I was doing all the work. In other words, I was doing all the field research. I was flying here, there, and everywhere, and I never spoke. In other words, the, all, all the material I was giving to the to the magazine and, and my boss was, was printing it and so forth, it wasn't until um, Colonel Corso and, and a little bit later that I began to um, – speak in, in other words from the first person uh point of view that i was on the stage speaking about a story i had done yeah. and I, I, there's very few of us i mean there's linda howe and essen sakarara from from uh turkey and it is difficult i mean it, it's a man's world and 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 i you know i've been told uh well you know maybe you're getting a little too emotionally involved with your stories and this and that and the other thing but uh, and, and I understand that. I do understand that. But I am one of those people that really encourages women in the field. Women are part of this uh, phenomenon, and they have a different point of view sometimes. And also, I really think that, um, especially in the field of abduction and um, and uh, contact research, Yvonne Smith just is, has become one of my very, very closest friends as far in, because I, I can't do that kind of research. And she, she's helped me a lot look at this, and she is a woman in the field also. And I think that it, it lends a lot. I mean, it, it does lend a lot. Linda Howe is one of the best of the best of the best, and she's done a lot of great work. And I know she's had a hard time. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the more that we do, the more that we come forth, the more that we speak, the, the better it will be for other women in yeah. this field. Yeah. And at the X-Conference, uh, you kind of touched on this a little bit. Maybe you can expound on it some more. At the X-Conference, too, uh, one of the main focuses of your first presentation, and uh, I, I dug out my old notes from uh, over a year ago now, uh, back when we set up the interview, uh, you urged for ufology to be more unified. Do you think uh, the American ufology, they need really to draw themselves together more and, and end the turf wars and the infighting? Yeah, I really believe that. But, you know, I think they can also pick up a phone. I mean, you know, when, when there's a story, you know, when there's a story happening in Europe, 
yeah. like the Milano sighting or something, you just pick up a phone and call and, and ask the people that are standing there or sitting there. And when, you know, uh, when there's uh, sightings in Mexico City, get on a plane and go there. And don't sit, sit at home. And I heard this, and I couldn't believe I was listening to this. Uh, don't sit at home and decide that what um, Jaime Mostan was was looking at, all seven or eight films, was just balloons. I mean, I heard a ufologist, a prominent ufologist say, well, you know, they're not necessarily UFOs. And I felt like saying, did you get on a plane and go down there and did you do your proper research? One of the problems, why people can't do field research and why they don't pick up a phone and why they don't call the original researchers is, guess what, money. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that we do, Tim, is financed from our pockets. Mm-hmm. And these poor researchers don't have the money to go places and they don't have the money to do the telephone calling and so forth because it costs a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you're married or have a significant other and you're doing this work. A lot of the money goes out there and a lot of the passion goes towards uh, you know, the research and the looking for the truth. And, and it's very hard on families. It's very hard on people that are, aren't subsidized. I mean, can you imagine if we, if, if this was taken seriously? I mean, I remember Alan Hynek saying to me, if man, uh, if going to the moon depended on volunteer work on weekends, we would have never gotten there. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that's the problem. Is it's money. So these guys, these people, the the people that are doing a lot of the debunking too, are making these hypothetical, throwing out these hypothetical statements without ever talking to the people or going and researching the crop circle or uh, or doing any of it. And and one thing that I will pride myself on is the fact that I have never done any story without flying there, without spending time with the witness and without personally looking them in the eyes to see if they're telling me the truth and trying to do my homework properly. But it's cost me a lot of money. I mean, when I flew to Canada even to do the Paul Hellyer interview, that all came out of my pocket. When I flew to uh, Orlando, Florida, to do the interview with uh, ground crew astronaut Clark McClellan, I mean, I had to go to NASA. I had to go uh, to to where Clark worked. I had to spend time with him yeah. before I even did his story. And I think that's, you know, the field research and that kind of research is the really good stuff. And, and it takes money. Um, and you talked a lot about the exopolitical movement. Um, do you think that that's where ufology is, is heading as a science and in, into a more activist sort of area? Uh, well, obviously, you seem to think that that's where it needs to go, but do you think that that's where it's going to be going in the future? If more people will think like that. I mean, we had um, a great group of people that, you know, like like Wendell Stevens, like Robert Salas, who was the military a uh, gentleman who was in the bunker at Malmstrom Air Force Base when the missile, you know, when the missile shut down. I mean, we we had uh, people like, uh, you know, good researchers and, and people like Paul Hellyer and everybody in Hawaii in June for that conference. Now, we were all impressed with, with Michael Sala, but Michael Sala is a newcomer to the field. And uh, Dr. Michael Sala is, is, is pulling us into a scholarly kind of, of area. Now, he will be speaking at Crash Retrieval Conference 
uh, in Las Vegas in November. I think it's November 11th. And, and I'm so thrilled about that because Ryan and Bob Wood are the best researchers, among the best researchers ever. They are, especially Ryan and Bob Wood are the, the, very open-minded. And, and they, and Ryan invited Michael Sala as ExoPolitics to come to this crash retrieval conference in Vegas. So he, you know, the, they will, ExoPolitics will be there in, in a regular UFO conference. And if these people all get together and they, and they share ideas and it becomes, you know, a much more open situation. Yeah, ExoPolitics will be covered in all of the conferences in the United States. And, and, uh, you know, it, it's very important that they all work together. Ryan Wood's book, uh, Magic 12 that just came out, I'm using it as a reference in one of my courses. Yeah. I mean, he, he's done so well. I mean, he does so much good work. So does his father. This is the way people should work. I mean, th this book is incredible. I'm using it. I'm using that. I'm using. I'm using glimpses of a new of of other realities. Linda Howe's book. I'm using Alan Hynek's book. I'm using uh, Alfred Weber's book. I'm using these people's work so that we can piece together this very complicated, really very mysterious phenomenon people call the UFO phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you touched on it a little bit uh, about, well, actually, you touched on it a lot. The Italian ufology scene is a lot different from um, American ufology. Um, and being Italian, maybe you can answer this question. What was the evolution of uh, Italian ufology? Was it similar to the American ufology? Or how has uh, the, the, the scene, the, the ufology scene in Italy evolved from, uh, you know, the, the 19, around the 1940s or so? You know what I mean? Well, the first thing, I didn't realize this until I talked to Dr. Panati, who's the head of, like, our MUFA, and he said that we had the Air Force, that Italy had an Air Force m way before America. Mm -hmm. uh, the Army Air Force became the Air Force in 1948, from what I understand. So, in other words, we had planes way before, you know, they were flying planes uh, before America, and that, that this, they began noticing anomalies. And during World War II, I guess they had uh, UFO sightings both in Germany and Italy during the Mussolini. Era, era, and that the, there were some X files, you know, uh, that came out, and he did a presentation on Laughlin on this during the Mussolini era. So it was, it's a, it's a matter of national security. I mean, you, you can't get away from that. Uh, and so there's a lot of real serious files that were put away, and so these files are being archived, and they're, and you know, they're being saved. And and the the researchers there, I, I think, in a way, are still kind of at the sighting stage and, and the archiving stage and the going to look at the physical traces cases and that kind of thing. We don't have any huge, uh, you know, Roswell situation yeah. in Italy. Everybody looks at uh, the, the, the birth of, uh, of ufology, the real birth of it from the Roswell case. And, and so they know all about it. And I have invited this year Jesse Marcel Jr. to come to Italy because you know it's going to be the 60th anniversary of the of the Roswell crash, and, and it's going to be one big party. I know <laughs> in Roswell, so it'll be uh, this year. I mean, everybody will be there. It'll be the 60th anniversary, and so uh, Jesse Marcel Jr., who actually handled the Roswell debris and, and has just written a book 
uh, call it, Roswell really happened. Um, I'm bringing him to Italy because then the people look at him as a historical figure. Yeah. I mean, they don't even question it. I mean, why would a man make up a story like that? I mean, he basically was an 11-year-old boy when his dad brought the pieces, spread them on the floor, tried to make sense of them. Uh, and so I just interviewed him here. Plus, he's coming to Italy for a conference. I mean, these people, they're just really curious in Europe. And, and you know, uh, and, and look at it as a serious situation. The, I think that the Europeans also admired Alan Hynek. He went to Europe several times. And when we have conferences, we invite the French, the Belgium, uh, people from Belgium, uh, the, the, the Russians, Boris Chernoff, uh, different people. And so we get an international picture yeah. where it, it is here, you know, that, I, I didn't see that many, uh, I didn't see that many international ufologists at the conference here in Europe. I mean, in, in America, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and now here in America, we had uh, the Project Blue Book and uh, an attempt by the government to explain the UFO phenomenon. Was there ever an attempt over in Italy for that kind of scenario uh, during during the 50s, 60s, 70s type era? Not that I know of. I mean, there may have been, but it wouldn't have been public. Yeah. There hasn't been an attempt looking at that, but there was a, an attempt uh, back in 19, back in around 1999 for the Italian government also to hand over and open up files for our MUFON organization, which is called the Centro Ufologico Nazionale Kun, to look at. And in other words, they came forward at one of the conferences and somebody, you know, a military man and said, yes, we do have these settings. Yes, we'll tell you where they are. And yes, there are files. Would you like to look at them and so forth? Somewhat what happened uh, to A.J. Gethard in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So we've had, our, we've had our military cooperating with that. They're not afraid to use the word UFO. I mean, it's on the news, and we get it. Oh, you know, we get it. They're not afraid to, to use the word unidentified because the thing is unidentified. Yeah. I mean, they don't necessarily think it's little green men or aliens or whatever, but whatever's out there. That's, that's, you know, we had a, a major sighting over the airport, Fiumicino Airport, of a green object. I mean, they were just reported it. There's a UFO over Fiumicino Airport, big deal. It, it, it's, you know, it's unidentified. It could be anything. Any more, though, Tim, uh, you know, in Exopolitics, I've got this chapter in my new book that talks about our stuff or their stuff. A lot of the back-engineered, you know, advanced technology is being identified as UFO, and it's our stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, what about UFO groups? Now, we had, like, NICAP form here in America. It was, uh, like, some pretty high-level researchers, and, and then, obviously, APRO, and then MUFON. Um, what about the Italian UFO groups? What about did they form, and, and what are, like, the main ones and, and that kind of thing? Well, the Central Ufologico Nazionale, and that's a group, but that group doesn't allow for any other groups, and that's that's a problem, and that's so... That's a problem. It's always been a problem. It's been a problem, I think, here uh, of the competition of groups, and it's a problem there. Uh, they don't officially recognize any other groups, and uh, it, it's hard because the, that particular group ha is is a, a group that's an older group that's been around for a long time, and there's some younger groups that have, like the the uh, the Gauss from from. Uh, um, 
Florence and their Gruppo Accademico uh, and their uh, Gruppo Accademico are from the university mm-hmm. and they've invited Ryan Wood to speak uh, on November 19th and in that group uh, nobody in that group is over 32 years old oh, wow. I mean that's a young group and they they you know there there's like this competition between the older group and the younger group and 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 it's hard because whenever you form a group there's there's a mentality there yeah. I just personally as a researcher refuse to belong to any group and I and I, I support all the groups mm-hmm. but I you know groups are hard because you know it, it, it's it's we're humans and when we yeah. get into the human thing there's competition there's there's you know debunking there's all that stuff. What's the attitude of the UFO community over there? You said they're pretty studious about the subject. It's not it's not as uh, as commercialized here as it is here in America. Look at it this way. Yeah, they're looking at a case of, of crop circle. We had a crop circle uh, in Escalipi Channel. So what, what happened is everybody just races there, and they start taking samples, and they start doing the questioning. And it's in the newspaper, and it's on the news, and nobody has any problem with it, and it's not censored. And uh, if it's... Something that that you know is is not real. They'll even say that. And if it's something that's mysterious, they'll say that. Yeah. And when when Jaime Maussan came with the Mexico Mexico City footage, I mean, it was on primetime Italian state television for four five minutes. I've never seen Jaime Maussan on CNN or NBC or yeah. ABC. I mean, his film footage is astounding. I mean, it, it's you it, it's. It's incredible. I mean, it's real film footage. I mean, it, it gets better because he's asked people with video cameras to to send him the footage, and he's like the the, per, the sixty minutes of he's a journalist. He's not a, a researcher. He's a journalist. He's got his own TV show, and so when he was on state television, and this is state television for forty minutes, and everybody's watching his film footage, there was no problem. Nobody thought it was weird. Nobody nobody called the station, you know, and and it, it, people just thought about it. I think what what. It happens when we allow less censorship of this kind of of material is that people get to think about it. What it did is it, it kind of shook them up as to what is happening in Mexico. Uh, it is, you know, are sightings like warnings or why are they here? Uh, and, and it helps people think a little bit. I don't think it was any danger to anybody. And uh, you asked for the difference. The difference is primetime television and, and uh, magazines on the newsstands and uh, the ability to talk about it without anybody laughing or ridiculing or coming in with an alien costume. Exactly, yeah. Well, I wish we had more of that here in America. And, and what about, like, the general public? Are they more accepting of the idea, or is, is the attitude similar to America? Well, what does, you know, look, it, it, we're dealing with 2,000 years of history. So, well, you know what they do. I mean, everybody's doing this anymore. They're looking at history and ancient history and the artwork. I mean, on my website, I have something like uh, a website that has 40 paintings of Renaissance artists that have UFOs in them. Oh, wow. And so, you know, uh, and, and the gentleman that has that website has done an incredible job. And then they go back and they go, well, did the Egyptians really build the pyramids? And what about the Sumerians? And what about Zachariah Sitchin's work on, you know, so they live in history because they're 2,000 years old. I mean, America is 200 years old. Yeah. A little bit over 200. And these people are 2,000. They don't think there's anything weird about, uh, you know, uh, mystery, mystery of archaeology or, or archaeological, you know, uh, uh, 
um, you know, mysteries of any kind. So they're, they're trying to, t- I think the, the average European is going, okay, well, if this is happening, how long has it been happening? Uh, how can we attach it to different cultures? Uh, in, in the Himalayas, in India, for instance, they have UFOs going, uh, they have lights going in and out of, of, of several mountains. I mean, they're looking wow. at a mystical situation. Uh, in fact, the people from India were talking at one of the conferences, and they have film footage of these lights going in and out and, and of, you know, different places in the Himalayas. And people are going, okay, well, this is really old. This is all part of history. This is all part of archaeology. This is all, let's look at when this started, uh, you know, let's look at what it might mean for history. I'm convinced that when we really find the truth, when disclosure really happens, we're going to have to rewrite every single history book. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. Um and, and being so close to the Vatican, are you hearing any uh, any change in the buzz coming from the Vatican with regards to the UFOs uh, scenario, Because especially with the change in, in uh, the papacy? Well, all I know is that Monsignor Balducci told me that, uh, you know, the Pope was interested. He mean, he knew. I mean, he knew that Balducci was doing these shows. He knew that it was on television. I mean, he was on nationwide television. Yeah. He's, uh, and he said that he was curious. I think uh, most people are curious. They're never going to take an official stance because uh, the Vatican, like any other political structure, is a political structure. Mm-hmm. It's, a re- it's a religious structure, but it's also a political structure. They have an incredible, uh, you know, observatory here. I think it's in Arizona. And they've got a lot of equipment looking at the stars. Everybody's looking at the stars. Everybody's looking at what's happening, uh, you know, in the cosmos. And and so I think that everybody's talking. If if they're interested in this kind of phenomenon, they're talking to each other. Whoever knows is talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, if disclosure is supposed to happen, they'll all agree when that's going to happen and what the date is and why and so forth. I, I just don't think you can keep hiding forever, especially if, if regular human beings, if people are going to be going out into space commercially. I mean, if somebody like Bert Rutan is is developing, you know, the White Knight space plane, and, and they're going to be taking regular people, what are you going to explain to them when they're looking at these, 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 uh, uh, you know, vehicles that are out there? I am positively sure, and I, I've talked to astronauts about this, that they've seen UFOs in space. I mean, you, you can't tell the UFOs not to show up yeah. when when people are out there, you know, in a regular commercialized plane. And in the next, you know, 50 to 60 years, we're going to be using commercialized planes to go to space. And so disclosure will have to happen. And the way that will happen is I don't think it will be, unfortunately, uh, you know, from the top about to be any announcement or anything, Tim. I think what will happen is, that everybody will just come to the conclusion that it was no big deal yeah. and that, you know, with the television and with all the movies that are coming out, a lot of them are disclosure movies. Mm-hmm. I think Close Encounters was a disclosure movie myself. Uh, you know, they'll just say, oh, yeah, the next generation will say, oh, yeah, no big deal. I mean, they're, they're, we've been visited by extraterrestrials, civilizations, no big deal, and that's the way it's going to go. Nobody's going to get on the bullhorn or, get, you know, do an, an announcement on – you know, from the from the Oval Office, nobody will do that. Yeah. That's not going to happen. Um, and now you just actually you raised an interesting question that uh, that 
that I should pose to you. Uh, since you were friends with Heineck, and he was sort of uh, closely affiliated with uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and there's always sort of uh, talk about Spielberg either knowing more about UFOs than he lets on or being used as a conduit for disclosure. Did Heineck have any thoughts on Spielberg and the film and whether or not it was being used as like a re-educational tool for the mass public? No, he never actually mentioned that. I did research on that later on. I, I did, uh, in my book, I, I talk about that. Uh, Steven Spielberg uh, belonged to a group of people that would meet at Francis Ford Coppola's house. And, uh, you know, those group, the, that people, who was involved there were the people in the 70s who were in California. And Uri Geller was there, I guess, and Jack Safadi was there, and, uh, in, in, what's his name, Jacques Vallée was there, and, and Spielberg was there, and they all got to talking. I mean, I, I, I think they all ha had some idea about this. And, and then I think that Spielberg, on, uh, on another level, uh, realized when he was speaking to Jacques Vallée and Alan Heineck that these, files they had at Kufos, a lot of them were real, and uh, the contact, and if you look at the movie, the little boy was contacted, and all these people were contacted telepathically to be at a certain spot. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not, not sure that there wasn't some kind of landing, and I'm not not sure that they weren't all contacted telepathically, and and I think that, that you know, I'm not surprised if you study this, the literature, and you study a lot of this, that, uh, you know, the the meeting with the aliens at Murak with uh, Eisenhower didn't really happen. I mean, it's logical. It's a national security issue. A lot of this stuff, you know, uh, I think if you if you study it, uh, you realize that a lot of people have done a lot of hard work to try to put together this puzzle. Yeah. And I think that it's 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 logic. I mean, it, of course, you know, we're dealing with uh, with with contact, and I think that that uh, even though it's glamorized, uh, it, it, you know, I think that Close Encounters is about a landing and about an invitation. And I remember Jacques Truffaut saying about the contactees, these people have been invited telepathically, and and it's been very and it's real interesting. I think that that's a possible scenario. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? Do you think disclosure, if it happens, would start outside of the U.S. and then gain speed and then sort of become like an accepted fact in America, or do you think it's going to have to happen in America first? No, it's going to start out of the U.S. I think we're all well agreeing to that. I mean, I, when I went to interview Paul Hellyer, he was hoping, he said, you know, he admired Stephen Greer's work, and he said that something like the Disclosure Project, and that was amazing. That was all these military people, including Robert Salas, who, who was the military man that was uh, in the bunker, uh, you know, that talked about the missiles being shut down in Maelstrom, and that's a real event. Those were real UFOs, and those missiles were really shut down. And and and, and Stephen put all those people together at, at, in the Washington Press Club. And if it's not going to happen there, if it's not going to happen with with real credible witnesses, these aren't these aren't contactees, or you know, these are military people, with, uh, military intelligence people that were involved. Uh, e even though the context scenario is very important, those poor people have been, you know, not taken as seriously as the military people. I think they should all come together, yeah. all of them. And I was talking to Paul Hellyer about this, and he said, well, maybe we should try this in Canada or should try it somewhere else. 
But then, you know, they did try it in Canada, as you know. May 9th of this year, from my website, Stephen Greer brought the whole Disclosure Project film video. And with Paul Hellyer, they did a conference in Canada. And no media showed up. So what does that tell you? What does that tell you? The media is opted out of this subject matter. Exactly. So, yeah, so one of the problems is that um, until the time is right and they get an okay, that's not going to happen in this hemisphere. Uh, what might happen is in, if, there, if Mexico keeps going, because they're having the most sightings right now, and if there's any big event in Europe and that's publicized and taken seriously, then it's going to come out from outside. It probably will come from outside. And do you think it'll just start like a domino effect where one country will, will uh, where it'll be forced out in one country and then, you know, the next country and then sort of it'll just keep spreading until finally uh, in the U.S. they're forced to, to, say, to do something about it or say something about it? Well, yeah, I don't know. They, I don't think they'll ever do it. I don't think that anybody will be forced to. I think the people will, when the people decide that they really want to know something, they can change the whole, they can change everything. Yeah. When people, when people decide, hey, you know, I'm not going to spend billions and billions of dollars on, on, you know, fighting aliens in space or, you know, on, on weapons in space or whatever. When people decide, when people decide, you know, it has to be the mass is a conscious the consciousness, the mass consciousness, and they, when they decide, then it'll change. It has nothing to do with the people in power, because I don't even think they know. I mean, I don't think happened. I don't think like like Stephen Greer says he had to brief three quarters of of the people in Washington. They don't know. They've got other things on their plate. They've got a war. They've got other things they're worried about. This is the last thing. This is the last thing they're worried about. <laughs> and, you know, and so it has to be. Uh, an intellectual wanting to know. In other words, I'm convinced that the average person that goes to the grocery store, that watches the game, that has a couple of beers, doesn't care. Because if they cared, they would they would bother to study this and they'd know. But, I mean, it, and, until the consciousness of the people are wanting to know and, and not being afraid to know changes, uh, then nothing's going to happen because I don't think that the politicians know. I don't think the government national. This is so compartmentalized and it's such a secret that, that I don't think that, you know, those guys that are working on all that are never going to come out with it. I think that the people are the ones that are going to have to make the decision. And maybe it's another generation, Tim. Maybe it's going to be the younger generation. Maybe the younger generation is going to say, hey, listen, if there's – Beings that are visiting, and it's not all grays, let's get off of that, uh, visiting us, and they're watching our development, and they're watching where they're going to make it or break it in this historical period. We want to know who those beings are. When that happens, then we'll know. Yeah. And, and, and for lack of a better expression, how do you think that will go down? I mean, because like you said, you don't think the government's going to make an announcement, but we do need this like paradigm shift where we're, we're going to uh, just openly accept that, that UFOs are real and that ETs exist and that they're visiting here. How do you think, how, can you, how do you see that sort of transition uh, playing out? That's exactly what John Mack wanted. John Mack stood on a stage in Florence and said, 
we can become part of cosmic culture, of, of the cosmos. We can take our place in the universe if we have a new world view, and he called it a new world view. He didn't use the word paradigm shift, because yeah. I think that's been used by New Age situation. He said new world view, and he said when that happens, we will no longer be the virus of the universe, because what we have to give, what we have to offer other cultures, and if we look at it that they might have culture, you know, what we have to offer them is nuclear bombing and, and, and wars and, and, you know, all this stuff, you know, where we, commercialization, we have that to offer them? No. I mean, we, we basically need to change the whole new world view of, of who we are as a species. And, and, and John Mack was very clear about that. He said, when we have this new world view, we will be able to come into our own to graduate where we deserve to be part of a, a cosmic situation. And, and that's a very beautiful part. If you look at it, and, and somebody does a study on Gene Roddenberry, uh, the Star Trek uh, ideal of the Federation being part of many, many, many cultures mm-hmm. is the most ideal. And I think that's the one the young people can swallow the best. Yeah. Because that, that's the one that fits. I mean, that's logical. But until we stop fighting among ourselves, I, I don't think we can even look at, look at it I mean, looking at uh, uh, aliens, I mean, aliens are so different from us in the way they think, the way they operate, the way they look. I mean, can you imagine uh, trying to be part of that when we can't even be part of what we got here? Yeah. So does that make you less or more optimistic about uh, seeing disclosure happen in your lifetime? Well, it all depends. You know, I'm, I'm going, well, is it in our hands? Well, okay, well, if it's in our hands... If, if this is in our hands, then, then okay, I'm going to keep trying in, on, a, on a university level, trying to look at all the literature, all the artwork. Remember I told you Renaissance art, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff that's out there. Okay, I'll, I'll do my best as a professor or as a teacher. But if it's on their scale, if they're going to do, I mean, you don't know what they got in mind. Yeah. Suppose they do a, a Mexico City flyover of here with 200 UFOs. I mean, if it's in their hands, then we don't have a choice. Everybody's looking at them, and there, there they are. And you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to explain that to anybody? I, I, you know, it's it's it depends on whose hands this agenda is in. If it's in our hands, I'm just going to do the scholarly thing. If it's in their hands, it's going to be really interesting how people <laughs> react to that. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And, and and based on what you what what you think and what you've researched, uh, whose hands do you think it's in? Us or theirs? Or do you just not know yet? Well, I think the minute we start thinking of destroying ourselves with the nuclear energy, you're going to see mass settings all over the world. The minute somebody gets an idea to destroy this planet, or the minute some some rogue nation or or anything happens where the, there's going, they're going to be doing any kind of nuclear bombing that's going to kill millions and millions of people, I think you're going to have mass sightings. I, I don't think that they'll... I think the prime directive is to let us alone till we get to that point. Yeah. I think the prime directive is, okay, well, let these guys kill each other until they start to do something. Because from what I understand and from, from the studies I've done, 
the the use of the nuclear powers because the, these things appear over nuclear bases, bases that have nuclear power. Even Colonel Corso said where there are nuclear rockets and where nuclear because the nuclear for some reason goes into their dimension and messes up their stuff. It messes it messes up their stuff so badly that they they don't like that we're messing. It's like we've got these dangerous toys. Yeah. The minute that we start doing something with these dangerous toys is the minute you're going to see that the agenda may be in their hands. Yeah. And that might just test the ball rolling and takes it out of uh, the, the Earthlings' hands, pretty much. Well, well, that's logical. We we don't know what we're doing, and we're causing problems other places. I mean, uh, with, with this, um, and and it's really interesting because uh, Jesse Marcel, when I was talking to him, he said, you know, he said, hopefully they have surpassed that part in their history, and we will survive. He yeah. said that we won't do have to go through that part of history where we self-destruct this planet. I mean, right now, I, I, people aren't even understanding how serious the Middle East situation is. That That is darn serious, more serious than I've ever seen ever, 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 ever. So, I mean, that this this situation there, unless it gets solved, it, it, if it escalates, it's it's going to be mess. And and I think that whoever's watching the planet is watching that for sure. Yeah. I mean, they, they're, they're watching that because that... That is a, a situation that's, that, uh, you know, can have its repercussions every which way. Mm -hmm. The human race, it doesn't seem like it's really ready to be integrated into any sort of uh, galactic community at all. How do you think that would play out if we force the hand of the ETs, but we're really not even mature enough to, to handle what we're forcing them to do? Do you think that'll cause some kind of panic, or do you think the people will be okay already? Will they be like, well, we knew it all along anyway, type of situation? No, I think it'll be it'll be a, a tremendous shock. I mean, it's like when the New World was discovered, you know, and and the Europeans came here and the Native Americans saw them. <laughs> and, yeah. And it's a what it's culture. It's when cosmic cultures meet. I mean, they they didn't know what to make of these these people, and they first of all they looked at them like gods, and then they you know there was this this. Uh, you know, clash of cultures. I think that same thing is going to happen. I'm hoping that religions religions won't be created around aliens, and we won't be looking at them like gods and all this other kind of stuff. I'm hoping that'll never happen. Yeah. I'm hoping I'm hoping that intelligent intelligent scholarly uh, studious people come forth and try to communicate. And there we go again. If they're communicating with telepathy, then I think that a lot of us. A lot of people should start looking at uh, the use of telepathy or the use, of, the use of, of these things that they call the paranormal, ESP, remote viewing, and all this. I mean, it's very important that we be using every method of communication other than a radio. What do you call it? A radio telescope. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, you're using a radio telescope. These things communicate telepathically. You know, it's... I'm, I'm hoping that, that people will get into that, I mean, into looking at it in a very broad way. Yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, it's hard to, uh, a lot of people try and, and, and put the UFO phenomenon into our field of science instead of uh, expanding the science. Yeah, well, see, this is where Colonel Corso said, you know, if we could invent a new science around this, I mean, if you could look at all of this and just rewrite it all, like we have to rewrite our history, then they will come across the answer. He was all for the new science. Yeah. That he, he was all for that. And, and um, you know, out there, I think there are people that are doing this, and I think there are people that are on the bandwagon and people taking it seriously. It's just that you don't find out about it, and you don't, you just don't know about it. 
you know, that's one of the reasons I like exopolitics because basically it's a studious. You read everybody's, uh, you read everybody's papers and you read everybody's books and you kind of put it together. Yeah, yeah. Instead of being like one niche uh, area of of the science, where you're sort of right. like isolated from all the other stuff that's going on. I want to talk to you a little bit about Paul Hellyer. He's sort of like the big story of the past year in in ufology and exopolitics. What did you take away from your discussion with Paul Hellyer? Well, on a really personal, personal level, uh, I was shocked that he that he would talk to me about UFOs. I mean, I, I looked at him, and when he said to me that he had read Colonel Corso's book, and he, he had checked on Corso with a four-star general, and that Corso was telling the truth, and he had gone on about not spending money to, to blow aliens out of the sky. I, I looked at him, and I said, do you know what you're saying? You're using the word UFOs and aliens. I said, do you know how unpopular that is? This, I mean, I, I was told by scientists, it's the kiss of death to, to talk about this subject matter if you're a serious scientist or a serious politician. And he, he made me really... You know, he put it right there. He said, Paula, in the good book, in the Bible, it says the truth shall set you free. He said, I'm not about to talk about lies. You know, and, and so, I mean, he, he really brought me down because I, I was, you know, kind of warning him about what he was saying. And he kept, and he threw it back at me and he said, why don't you stay with looking for the truth? Which, which really taught me a lesson. And, and what he, what he talked about in detail in my interview was that uh, basically he, that this planet is run on an economic structure and, and that the economic structure is extremely detrimental to the um, evolution of mankind. Yeah. And, and, and so he had written six books on economics, and one of them is called The Evil Empire. I didn't realize it because, you know, I did all my homework, my research before I walked into his office. Mm-hmm. And he believed that, the, you know, the fossil fuel, the oil, the, 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 the big banks and the whole group of people that make all the decisions are running the whole thing, including yeah. the whole UFO thing. And I don't, I don't do conspiracy theories. I don't like getting into it, even though I interviewed David Icke and I interviewed the people who talk about this. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't like talking about it because, and I'll give you the reason, Tim, is because it doesn't do any good. I mean, big deal. So, I mean, we all know there's conspiracy theory. We all know that everything isn't the way it really seems. Like, what good does it do to, to really harp on that? I'd rather go and talk about positive things like, you know, our ability to use meditation and, and, and good intentions to change the world. I mean, I'd rather look at a Gandhi or a situation, you know, with compassion and, and love that would change the world and to talk about all the conspiracy stuff. Yeah. So I, I can honestly say that Paul Hellier is real knowledgeable about how, how the world is run, and he wants to contribute some little part to the talking about possibly becoming cosmic culture. Uh, and, and he, like Edgar Mitchell, who's another wonderful, wonderful interview that I did. Edgar Mitchell also wants, he's a Paul 14 astronaut who walked on the moon, who also wants us to grow up and take our place in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these men have a, a certain age. They're in their 80s. Yeah. Uh, and and they're, they're leaving behind this wonderful legacy of wanting us to take play our part in the cosmic cultures and in the cosmos and, and not be our, our little silly little primitive species that are still doing the same thing we did in in, in caveman days. Yeah. So I, I really admire these people and what did I walk away with? Uh the inspiration that Paul Heller gave me is the same one that Edgar Mitchell gave gives me is the same one that Colonel Carso gave me all in their 
older years, uh, these people are, are becoming very, very enlightened and giving us a very solid message. Yeah. And how do you respond to uh, the critics of Hellyer? Now, I heard someone on the radio the other night say, well, he just read Colonel Corso's book, and that's all he has for information. I have interviewed Alfred Weber, and he told me that pretty much what you just said, that Hellyer confirmed it with U.S. sources of his own. That's correct, right? Hellyer, he didn't just get his, he didn't just read uh, The Day After no. Roswell, and now he's no. a UFO buff, right? Do you honestly think that he would do that? Well, some people <laughs> no, apparently no, do, like, you know. Well, they could because they have something to say about everything. I wish they would go in and talk to the man. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's really easy for you to say that. You think he's stupid being, you know, the, the national, the ex-minister of defense. He, in my interview, he said he got UFO reports coming on, on his desk when he was minister, ex-minister of defense. I mean, if people would bother to read my interview and, and, and stop, you know, just gossiping and yeah. and would do some rare, they would see that his words, and I have it on tape because there's a DVD, he says, UFO reports were coming across my desk, but I did not have time to look into them because I was unifying the armed forces, something everybody wanted to do. But not only were they coming across his desk, you think he wasn't being briefed? I mean, you know, come on. I mean, you'd have to be crazy not to know that being Minister of Defense, you bet your life he knows national security issues. And when he's sitting there in front of me telling me he's extremely concerned, he is extremely concerned about this situation. It isn't just Corso's book. It's, it's a whole bunch of situations. He's done his homework. He's, he's listened and read the Disclosure Project. I mean, none of those military men in Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project are lying. These men put their career on, on, on line to be in Washington. Exactly. So th this is this is serious business. Look, even if two military men came forth, even if two, and we have something like 50, mm -hmm. and it's ridiculous. I mean, y there's so much proof in this phenomenon and so ridiculously about so much uh, debunking uh, that that I, it, is, it, it isn't even worth talking. Paul Hellyer is really, really serious because he does not want us to go ahead and be having some kind of space war unless we know who the devil are in those spaceships. Yeah. And then, and I agree with him there, you know, mm -hmm. I agree with him there. He said that is a serious way to look at it. But then what if the space war is staged? That even gets trickier. Yeah. You know, I mean, so are these serious uh, policy issues? You bet. Are they serious national security issues? You bet. And they should be heralding somebody like Paul Hellyer instead of criticizing him, because at least he came forward with it, uh, and he's and he's doing his homework. I mean, I'm sure he's spoken to a lot of people. He can't come forward. He can't mention names. A lot of a lot of times, even with people that I deal with. Uh, a lot of this is extremely confidential, and, and you just can't come out and say who told you or where this is coming from, but you know that you have firsthand sources that, that he's dealing with. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I deal with a lot of firsthand sources too, but you have to protect their identities. And so, and besides, why would he ever do this unless it was serious business? I mean, he's, he's retired, he's, 
82. He's written all kinds of books. He, he feels that this is one of the most important, crucial issues that mankind has to face. And it's uh, and, and people that really want to do their homework should look at the text on my website on exactly what he said. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I wanted to set the record straight on that because I I, I hear it a lot that that, that uh, all all Hellier had was Corso's book, and now that that makes him some kind of UFO expert, and that's not the case at all. And I'm glad that you had the chance to uh, clear that up. Yeah, but then uh, you know, there's another phenomenon in this uh, in the ufology, and that is the new man on the block that everybody's jealous of, and I I hate that whole situation. I've seen it happen with Michael Sala. I've seen it happen with everybody. Uh, instead of calling him up and saying, "Can we have lunch?" Uh, you know, uh, Paul Hellier, can we have lunch, Dr. Sala? Can we talk? What they do is they just just go after the jugular. They go after these people without ever bothering to find out who they are, anything about them, or why they're even in the field. For me, the ufology field is an extremely unpopular field. It isn't something you choose. Uh, it's something that you have some kind of uh, passion about or personal curiosity about it. It's not something you jump into with both feet unless you have some reason. And I think the more intelligent approach would be to pick up a phone or to read my interview with him and or hear his speech uh, especially his speech in, in, in uh, Hawaii, if people can actually buy that, the speech uh, in Hawaii, they can buy the, the DVD of what he said in Hawaii. He talked about Ryan Wood's book. You talked about Canada. You talked about a lot of serious things. And that is that that's through your website, right? No, the, the speech is on Michael Sala's website. He has all the DVDs. Uh, of the Hawaii conference, and one of the speakers there was Phil, uh, was Phil Corso Jr. Because in Hawaii, Colonel Corso's son came, and he met with Paul Hellyer and was able to give Paul Hellyer all kinds of new information that Colonel Corso revealed. Oh, awesome, awesome! And uh, I want to ask you for an update on the Brazilian disclosure uh, story that broke uh, about a year and a half ago that the Brazilian government was going to hand over some information to A.J. Javard, and you had appeared on the radio with A.J. Javard to talk about it, and I haven't heard much about it since. Um, what's the latest on that, and uh, how has that developed in the year and a half since the story first started rolling? Well, you know, A.J. and I are pretty good friends because he puts out a magazine. Um, he puts out a UFO uh, OVNI magazine, and we put out Area 51, so we're always talking. And AJ um, has gotten files uh, and, and gotten cooperation from officials. Uh, but, you know, the files that he got were not current. They're, they were, you know, a couple of years old. Yeah. The fact that they considered him, though, uh, worthy of working with them, and they considered the, a researcher worthy of, of being part of a, of, a, of a dialogue with military was what's important. So anything that AJ has printed, he's printed uh, in Portuguese, unfortunately, in his magazine. We don't get it here in the United States. What AJ is trying to do is translate his magazine into English. Yeah. Um, we only have one magazine here, and it's not on the newsstands, it's UFO magazine, so you, you have very little access to to the newest ufological material. Uh, and AJ is trying really hard to get it translated into English so he can also uh, let you see what his newest work is. And the fact that he's being taken seriously and working together with the military is historical. And um, as has 
does he is is there more going on there with the Brazilian disclosure? Are they giving any more information out? Have they have they had any talks about um, more stuff coming out from the Brazilian government, or is it sort of a one shot deal? No, that's it's kind of a one shot deal. But you know, I'm going to add something, Tim, that might interest you though. You know, Roger Lear, who who is the the uh, uh, the doctor who does the uh, implant surgeries. Yes. Sir. He did go down to. Um, to uh, Brazil, and he did do some research with AJ on that Virginia case. The Virginia case is so very important because that's so recent, and uh, that he did, uh, you know, where there was the crash and the creatures were running around the little town yeah. and seen by everybody. And Roger Lear, who was an American, see, this is an example of working together that I love. And Roger Lear is an example of an American researcher who did go down there and. Uh, he talked to the um, family of the fireman that picked up the, the creature and put him on his lap and uh, that later died. And this is one of the exopolitical situations that I talk about all the time. This was a real case. The creatures were running around the town. I mean, they were not gray. They, were, uh, they had a reddish skin, and the people mistake them for devils because they they do not look like us, obviously. They were creatures. And uh, the fire department uh, went to look for the one that was free and did find him. And the young fireman, I think he was 24 years old, puts this creature on his lap and uh, holds him. And, of course, the, the, the being did not offer any resistance at all. And they take him to a hospital. Okay, that is real. That's documented. They got that. That happened. But the exopolitical part that interests me is the fact that whatever is there, the poor being, the acid on the being or whatever the being had, um, went and caused the death of this very young um, uh, fireman. And, and, you know, he left their family behind. And so Roger Lear, who, who does very good research, went down to speak to the family. And, and you know, that was a real case. That's a situation where if there is a, an alien running around or you're trying to capture him or something, you do not touch him like this this, this young man did. I mean, yeah. you have to if we had a protocol in, in place, if, if we looked at this as a real situation, that would never have happened because it would have been a protocol where you would have put up gloves or some kind of outfit or something where yeah. you would not have been contaminated. Now, to me, that's logical. All this stuff is logical. I, I don't understand why we can't talk about it and why we can't develop protocols and why people can't look at it as research. What do you mean we, uh, American ufologists or ufologists? No, in, in general, world, world ufology in general, because I don't think it's any different in Italy. I don't think that the, uh, Italy or, or France has a definite protocol for any kind of contact. I mean, if you see a, a being that's hurt or a being from a crash or anything, we, I don't think we have protocols in, in place. And if we do, we don't know about them. Yeah, yeah, and like what you said about uh, Dr. Roger Lear going down in Brazil, that's the kind of thing you encourage is a lot of uh, international ufology. That's why I like to call you a geo-ufologist because you, uh, you cover the world here. Expound on that a little bit, how we need to unify the world of ufology. We need more American researchers, you know, going out to check out the, uh, the Italian conferences and, and like you brought Monsignor Balducci to America and, and that, that kind of thing. We need more of that scenario going on in ufology and not just, you know, covering it from your home office. Exactly, and covering it, and and making these these ad hoc statements from your, you know, so you can be on TV. I mean, I, it's ridiculous. Uh, in, in in Europe, we have brought over in the last five years, we brought over Linda Howe, 
we brought over Richard Boylan, we brought over John, John Mack, um, Nick Pope from England, we've, um, we've had, uh, Roger Lear, we've had, um, Bud Hopkins, we've brought over all these people to Europe, okay, because we're trying to exchange information. I don't think we brought anybody from Europe here. I mean, the only person that gets to come, and I, actually he's among the best, is Heine Malsan, uh, who came to Laughlin, and A.J. Givhart, who's come to Laughlin. Akhtan Akhtan from Turkey has come to Laughlin. And, you know, those. if we do more international kind of work where people are actually looking at what's happening all over the world, they, they could put together the pieces better. Again, somebody like Roger Lear who goes to check on Virginia case, it's, I guess we're going to go back to the big issue of money. Yeah. Nothing is sponsored, and, and he would have had to go on his own dime, and I think that's one of the problems. I think that a lot of, we're, I think a lot of the people are looking for money instead of spending money. In other words, I, I think in a way, um, you know, it, it becomes, if it becomes too commercialized, you know, it's, it's a way of looking for money rather than people spending their money to go and do the actual research. I wonder how many people that are, don't believe Roswell has, ha has happened have ever gone there and speak to the surviving witnesses. Apart from Jesse Marcel Jr., who happened to be in Denver, I mean, there's Glenn Dennis, who was a mortician during the period, who is an incredible witness. Mm -hmm. and, and instead of, you know, playing around with the weather balloon story, you should go and and talk to these witnesses that are still alive. Most of these people are an age, and we're going to lose them. We lost Walter Hopp this year. Uh, and so I consider field research or even whatever kind of research people can do where they actually talk to the people face-to-face, -face, not on the phone, the best kind of research. And that's why I get very frustrated when I hear um, these debunkers, uh, you know, I feel like saying, how much money did you spend to go to speak to that person so you can debunk them? You know, I, I, that's why I get so frustrated when I hear these these statements being thrown out without any real, you know, research being done. With regards to the issue of the lack of funds, how do you think uh, ufology can even overcome that? Because that's been a problem for a very long time. It doesn't seem to have any sort of solution. I, I talked to uh, Steve Bassett at length um, for the series last year. And, and he was really emphasizing the same point, that there's just such a, a lack of funds in ufology that it makes it so hard to really do anything. Is there any way really to overcome that sort of thing, or is it just, you know, perseverance? No, there's no way to overcome it. All, all the research I do where I fly here, there, and everywhere it comes out of my teacher's salary. If I didn't have another job, I could never do it. I, there is no way to overcome it. It is not serious enough. I mean, just like Alan, you know, Alan Hynek also was looking for funding. In the last years of his life, I know we, we looked at all different situations for funding the Center for UFO Studies. And... um he used to, I mean, he made that statement about getting to the moon. If you really want to do this, I mean, apart from black ops, and I just it beautifully, I mean, the people that are working in the black ops programs that, that are doing all the, the real, you know, back engineering and finding out about the aliens and all that, that's funded. I'm not going to talk about that, yeah. you know, how that's done. But the, 
that's funded. If the researchers that wanted to do it on their own, that wanted to study it, could could fund it, they have to fund it from doing some other kind of job. It's very hard, and I don't know too many people that can make a living off ufology. It just isn't possible. And, and if you do make a living off ufology, then something is there where you have to, like, really – you know, really be everywhere. I mean, you have to you do a lot of shows and sell a lot yeah. of books and do a lot of that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And do you think maybe if if ufology gets further ensconced in uh, academia and maybe changes the minds of uh, whoever puts out the grants and that kind of thing, maybe then it could happen? But that that's sort of a long shot in and of itself. I don't think grants are the answer because grants are sometimes government grants, and it's really hard to to justify, you know, that's one of the reasons why a lot of these people can't tell the truth and know the truth because they're getting government grant money. I don't think that that's the, I think it's young people. I think it's going to be the other generation. I, again, I'm going to go back to the thing, the day that people want to know, the people will know. The day the, the younger generation says, enough of this, I want to know, uh, I want to study, I want to put it together, that's when they'll know. Uh, those people, those are the ones that are, that are, you know, I mean, if you look at, uh, without going into the protest movement of the during the Vietnam War, I mean that 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 stopped the machinery right there. Yeah. If enough people got together, if enough they could stop everything. I mean enough. Of, but it, I think it has to be the younger generation. I, I I don't know. Even though I find, and this is really amazing, all conferences I do in the United States, I even spoke in Sedona. They're all the older generation. There's nobody under the age of 50 or 60 in the audience. It's almost like. You know, we always knew, but, you know, we want to know from you because we always knew, and, and it's all older people. I, and I keep asking, where are the young people? Where are the 30-year-olds? Where are the 20-year-olds? Where are the young people? I mean, don't you want to know? Don't you – aren't you curious about uh, all this? And I, I'm that is the biggest question I have to ask somebody. I mean, if I were doing an interview, that, that's probably – I would ask everybody that. Where are the young people that are interested in this phenomenon? Well, let me turn that around on you and ask you, where are they, and, and why do you think they're not, They're not. Uh, you know, I'm 27, I'm one of the very few people in, in the UFO field that's, that's, like you said, below the age of 30. Where do you think these people are, and, and obviously, like you said, they're not here, uh, where are they, why do you think they haven't uh, picked up the UFO issue as something worth investigating? Because I think they're disillusioned with everything. They just kind of they shut down. It's like the dis, the dissolution with all of it. They don't expect to get a, a, a right answer with anybody. I mean, they 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 probably they're just so disillusioned with society, the government, the world, the planet that they don't expect uh, probably uh, an honest answer from anyone. So they're not even looking, which is really wrong. I mean, they should they should start doing scholarly study, I'm going to push that forever, uh, they should look. Um, but I think that's the that's my answer. I, I wish you'd asked him that question from a lot of people because that's the thing that's, that really bothers me the most. Whenever I come to any conference, there's a lot more young people in Europe that are at conferences. I mean, I told you that group in Florence is all 30-year-olds, and they brought John Mack, Linda Howe. Uh, they brought, uh, you know, they brought a lot of famous people in because they're they're studying, but they're a university group. Um, so I, I I encourage you, Tim, to ask other people where are the young people that that are interested in this. 
And and you said there's there's more young people. You seem it seems like there's more young people in in Europe. Um, what do you think the cultural differences between Europe and America as to why there'd be more young people there than here in the United States? Well, this is a philosophical question. When we study in Europe, we study history. We study philosophy. Philosophy is part of it. You've got to study philosophy. I mean, if you look at the UFO phenomenon, this is philosophy. This is philosophy of living. It has the philosophy of, uh, of cultures, of cosmic cultures. It's philosophy of beliefs. It's belief systems. It's, it's a lot of things. Here, I think people... I, I may be wrong, but I think that the, the, the main educational goal in, in American education is, is money making. You know, it's, yeah. it's success with, with commercial money making. Philosophy has nothing to do with it. History has nothing to do with it. I mean, MBA and you're there and you're gonna, you're gonna make your million and that's, the, it, that's the only difference that I really see. It's a, it, the, 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 the philosophy, the history, and the, and the connection is not really pushed. Uh, when I was teaching here in the States, I was teaching history, and, and, and the kids just didn't have any relevance to history. I mean, they were wondering why they had to take it. Uh, in, in Europe, since you're, you're steeped in history, and, and, and that could be cosmic history too. I think there's a lot more curiosity about the nature of planet Earth, the nature of the human species, the nature of philosophy, and the nature of how we all got to where we are now. I think there's a lot more curiosity. That's just personal opinion. So I want to stress that for people. It's just oh, yeah. my personal opinion. What's the perspective of the people in the Italian UFO field? What's their perspective on the U.S. Uh, ufology scene? Because the U.S. ufology scene, they're kind of like the, the big dog in the yard. You know, we have Roswell, and obviously the country's so big that there's even regions, you know, the West Coast is a lot different from East Coast ufology. Uh, over in Europe, what's the perspective of what's going on here? Is it like they, they're not doing enough, or they don't take it seriously enough, or... I wish they'd do something differently, or they admire the U.S. scene. What's what's the perspective from Europe on the U.S. scene? Huge secrecy. America knows the answer. They have a stake in keeping the technology secret. Area 51 is where it all happens. There's huge black ops programs that will never come out, and that's it. In other words, it's the big secret. It's here. It's the, it's the big country that's got the big secret that has the answers that aren't ever going to talk about it. And they, you know, they, they really believe that. They believe that, uh, that it, that, that we're the key. That, 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 uh, America is the key to the whole thing. Yeah. That, 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 that it's being hidden here. It's being, you know, uh, apart from the fact it's being ridiculed, we're not even going to that, but the big secret is the secret here. I mean, it, it's not hard because they don't give very much cooperation. I mean, we're not having yeah. world forums on ufology. We're not having a San Marino, which is a San Marino has every flag of the world and, and one ufologist from all over the world there. It's a serious situation like the United Nations. I don't see anything like that happening here. Yeah. And is there uh, like a resentment in a sense? Is it sort of like, well, we have to work around the U.S. scene because they're, they're, not, they're, they're not playing with the rest of us as far as ufology goes? And I don't mean like the U.S. government, but I just mean like the U.S. researchers. 
Well, I think they like the researchers. I mean, I, yeah. we brought over so many of the researchers. The researchers are like heroes to the yeah. Europeans. All these researchers that are doing such a good job are, are like heroes. Now, they look at, what it is is a fallacy. They're looking at the United States government as having a secret. Well, we just talked about this. Stephen Greer had to brief half of the people in Washington that he dealt with. They don't know. They don't know. They don't have time to know. They don't want to get into it. They've got other things on their plate. The, the UFO secret is not in, in, the, in Congress or in the presidency or, you know, that's not where it's at. Uh, and, but the, the world in general doesn't know that. They, they, they blame the government. I remember Colonel Corso saying to me, Paula, don't mention the government. What's the government? It's changed over the last 20 years. It's not even the same people. So you're blaming people that have changed roles. He said it's not the government that's keeping the secret, but that's the fallacy. I mean, that's all the, the Europeans think it's the government, the president knows, and all that. And that's that's not the case. I, I, that's not the way it is. Yeah. Okay, and another uh, story and person I want to talk to you about for a little update was uh, Charles Hall. You did a lot of work with him uh, at the beginning of 2005. Um, I haven't heard much from Charles in the last year or so. I'm sure you're probably more up to date on what's going on with his story um, have there been any advances in the Charles Hall story? Well, I haven't heard much from him either, so I'm going to be honest with you. That okay. was that was a very hard case to deal with because the communications uh, there didn't go all that well. I mean, it, that that that's what happens sometimes with with the cases. I was the journalist that brought that out because I researched that really well and found the other people that worked with Charles on the Indian Springs base after 40 years. The only way we could do that was by contacting the um, a retired LA police uh, captain who who uh, actually found the the people that Charles were mentioning in his book. So. Um, the, the fact that that case came out, the fact that people, if they're interested in it, can can uh, uh, look for the uh, you know Millennium Hospitality books. I, I will also mention him, and I, I am writing a brand new book called uh, "How Does One Speak to a Ball of Light: uh, Exopolitical Implications for Future Contact." I will mention part of the Charles Hall case in that book because that is a real uh, case of galactic diplomacy and citizen diplomacy. Here's a man who's a meteorologist out on the Indian Springs base who has not been told that there are tall white aliens with their kids walking around, floating around in that case in the 1960s, 1965. He has not been told that, and he has this encounter with them without any preparation and not knowing how to handle himself and not knowing how to communicate and being scared out of his wits. Uh, the way Charles, uh, you know, communicated with those aliens is perfect for the point I want to make about not being prepared. Here's uh, Charles who sees what he thinks is an animal in, in, a, in a sagebrush, you know, in, a, in, in, in the sage, and he, he gets closer and he sees it's a little girl uh, with uh, transparent blonde hair and realizes when looking at the eyes that are almond-shaped and blue that it's not human or that child is not a human child. Uh, and he has to, uh, his data bank and his, his his whole system, his whole nervous system, everything has to change over to try to accept that what he's looking at is different from what he's used to. That case is important. Uh, it's, it, for, I encourage people to look at that case. And um, 
and I, I believe his story. I mean, he's, if I didn't fly him out there with, with my partner, David Coote, we did this story together. He's uh, an airline pilot who worked on the story with me. I flew Charles Hall out to Indian Springs, close to the base, and were able to, he was able to tell us, you know, detail by detail how his encounter was in this, in 65. If I hadn't done field research and, and I would never really understood that story. And I think that that story is part of the overall research I've done to show the contact has already happened, that there needs to be protocol, there needs to be some, some, um, you know, ideas of how to deal with this on a serious level um, for the future. So thanks for mentioning it. And I really think that the people that are interested in the Charles Hall case should read Millennial Hospitality. Definitely. I wanted to uh, ask you, I ask a lot of people uh, who've been on the show, I wanted to ask you if you've been following the Serpo story at all and what you think of it as it's unfolded so far. Well, you know, I follow everything. We did cover <laughs> the Serpo story in Area 51. I mean, I can't throw everything away. I think that, um, yeah, first of all, I think there's a core truth, yeah, a seed, a little tiny seed truth to, uh, to this story. I think that it's probably 60% disinformation and 40% information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the way every story that comes out as part of the slow process release of information comes out. It comes out with all this disinformation around it so that we get something called official deniability. So people can say, oh, yeah, well, you know, this isn't really true, but a core of it is true. The thing that it, that interests me about that is that it's the same scenario of uh, Close Encounters. And I know that Close Encounters, after all this time, a lot of it was true. So it is not unusual that there may be a, a meeting, that there may be a landing, and that there may be an exchange. Now, I don't think it's exactly the way it's being depicted at Serpo, uh, the Serpo situation, because there's nobody alive from that group to be able to, to verify it. So that would be very poor research. I mean, if there's nobody alive, I mean, who are you going to interview? Yeah. But I think it's an, uh, it's an attempt uh, to uh, to talk to us about the fact that it could be logical that an exchange was made. Yeah. And I've heard other exchange stories. I can't go into them in detail. Yeah. But I have heard other exchange stories from viable sources in the past. Mm-hmm. And not always American, you know, not always an American exchange. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, what other countries, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> well, uh, it, well, I, it, it's, it's better if I don't go into the details of that because uh, I've heard that that a lot of other countries have been contacted other than America, and and there and as far as and it started way back during the German times, you know, mm-hmm. before you know, right around that time. Uh, what what's curious is that you know right now whatever. Whatever is contacting us is going to the biggest, uh, you know, the most powerful country on earth. If for some reason America doesn't become the most powerful country on earth, whatever is contacting the planet is going to go to the next country. Yeah. And, and we're going to all make guesses where that country is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that kind of segues a little bit into something I wanted to ask you. Um, is it being that you know of a lot of stuff that's going on around the world as far as ufology goes, do you hear a lot coming out of the Asian countries uh, right now, most notably China, they're very closed door, but also they have a pretty serious uh, ufology scene. Do you ever hear uh, much coming out of there? And also the English-speaking Hong Kong area might also be a, a place where you might be hearing some stuff. 
Well, I, I just know about their sightings because I met Shun Chi Li in, in Laughlin, and he is the Chinese representative. See, this is what's, what would be so cool if we could have him speak uh, because he, he represents China and the Chinese ufology, and there's quite a few sightings there. What I've heard the most, though, you said Asian, uh, Japan, Japan is everywhere. Japanese television is literally everywhere. They covered the Billy Myers story and they, in the Nippon, um, group bought Billy Myers' movies and they've got an incredible, uh, presentation on Meyer. They did incredible research. They have been covering the crop circle phenomenon, the, the Japanese. They, they were in Phoenix for the Phoenix Lights. I mean, the Japanese, uh, film crews are everywhere and, a lot of the the um, you know outtake NASA footage is coming out of Japan too. A lot of the footage that shows anomalous objects that are not all ice particles—I mean that's impossible—that yeah. uh, that are in space are coming out of Japan. So if if somebody had to ask me, were the avant-garde a video, um, you know, interviewing, you know, media is coming out of, I would say, Japan. For some reason, they're really interested, and their camera crews are everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like you said, you do, you, you invest a lot of your own money in, in, the, uh, in your research. How do you decide, as a researcher, which stories to go after, which cases to investigate? Do you have do you have to do an extensive amount of uh, sort of like weeding them out? Because like you said, you, you fly out and talk to the people. I mean, you couldn't do that for every case. And, and I mean, it must uh, – you wouldn't want to get into a situation where you're flying out to meet some person that you don't think is telling the truth. But maybe that's happened before. I don't know. But as a researcher, you know, how do you determine what's worthy of further investigation? Well, actually, I'm kind of in a narrow field. It's narrow in that that a lot of the people that are my original stories are military or intelligence people. The Charles Hall story, he's, he's ex-military, yeah. uh, and Carl Corso's military, Michael Wolf. Kuvant is was uh, intelligence community. Um, Clifford Stone is military. So I stay in that field, uh, and maybe I should branch out a little bit. So usually, you know, um, Clark McClellan, who, with whom I'm still communicating, is ex NASA, worked on the Apollo programs, worked in NASA for 22 years. Uh, you know, I, I'm in more in that field with with these people that that uh, you know are are sharing information. So, you know, if they can show me credentials that they are, you know, who they say they are, and if they have a story, uh, I usually decide after I fly out and meet them. And with the case, my latest one, it was Paul Hellyer. I mean, you can't go wrong. That's ex-minister of defense. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you can't go wrong with someone like him. And, uh, in, 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 I just did an interview with Robert Salas. I had mentioned, uh, Robert Salas again. He'd be a great interview for you. He is the, the, uh, retired military gentleman who was in the bunker when the missiles were shut down in Maelstrom. I mean, these are, these are viable people that I interview. Now, there, there have been one or two cases of, of, uh, that I would like to do. For instance, I have met, and I do believe the story of Helen Kittel, who says that a hybrid alien uh, girl uh, was her daughter's roommate okay. uh, some yeah. years ago. I do believe that. that The name of that book is Rachel's Eyes. But that was investigated by uh, by a MUFON investigator. And, you know, 
uh, uh, I think it's Jean Billadou, and, and that's already been investigated. But I would recommend that people read Rachel's Eyes because that's another case of aliens and humans mixing on Earth. It's just like the Charles Hall case. If I had the time and energy and I wasn't, you know, going back to Italy, that's a case that I would look into a little bit deeper because I have talked to her several times on the phone and then in person uh, and I really think that that would be an incredible case to follow up on. That sort of segues well into what kind of present-day cases are you working on or you see coming up on the horizon as far as your investigations go? Well, more than present-day cases, uh, I think that, that I'm really excited about teaching the course in exopolitics that Michael Sala is doing so I can I can do, you know, uh, put together some more information on my own. But I am going to... Um, look uh, heavily again into the Charles Hall case as far as using pieces of that for my book. And uh, and also I would like to, you know, talk more with A.J. Gevhardt of, of the Virginia case. Now, it, it, I already have checked into this. I wanted to go to Mexico and uh, talk to the, the young boys who um, were involved, I don't know if you know, in the cellular phone a uh, case where the alien grabbed the boy while they were playing soccer in the in the um, uh, in, in that in Merida in Mexico. Mm -hmm. I've heard it, a bit about you know, you, you probably know about that case. It was all captured on cell phone. And I've been working with Santiago Echuria to see if I can get to Mexico to, to interview those boys myself. Because, I mean, I saw the film footage. I mean, that there's nothing hoaxed there. I, basically, also, the fact that uh, there is radiation in that spot, and, and Jaime Maussan has invited people to go there and, and uh, you know, use, use whatever methods to, to examine the radiation that the universities have found there in, in that particular spot. I'm interested in that because that's real scientific evidence. So that case I'm really interested in, plus... I've never seen any of the crop circles, and I would love to go to England next year and do more crop circle research. Even though I'm convinced a lot of them are imitations, I believe there are some real ones. We had one in Italy that I'd like to look into. So I, I may branch into looking at the, uh, and questioning the crop circle phenomenon in England. So I guess, in a way, I should broaden what I do into these areas. I think it, it probably would produce a lot of growth for me. Like you say, connecting the dots, pretty much it all comes down to that, really. You're a very prolific speaker. You, you make a lot of appearances. Um, what, what's your schedule like for uh, conference appearances and speaking appearances uh, upcoming? Okay, I have a lot of them in Europe. Uh, basically, I will be um, speaking in England uh, on two occasions. Uh, so I will. I am going to England on the 24th. I'm speaking on the 30th, uh, and I've got two uh, speaking engagements in England. Then I will be coming back, and I will be speaking in Venice in northern Italy, and then I will be speaking at Florence. Uh, that young group of people is putting on a conference, and Ryan Wood will be there. Then I am putting on a conference in Rome on the, the 29th of October, inviting Russell Targ, uh, Stanford Research Institute. He's a, uh, a physicist that's also very mystical uh, and has written Miracles of the Mind, and I'm, I would like him to do some remote viewing demonstrations in Rome because he worked at Stanford Research Institute. Uh, and I, so I put on conferences. I'm doing that one, and then I will be um, – 
doing one in France, in Marseille, uh, in France. And so I have uh, a set of conferences in Europe that I do, and I will be flying back at Christmas time here and um, hope to attend Laughlin. I mean, I won't be speaking there, but I'll meet a lot of people from all over the world there. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing that. And, and one last thing I wanted to tell you, Tim, is that I was really, really impressed with Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, okay? And I just wrote a major article that's going to be published, I think, everywhere, comparing the fact that we are up for ecological disaster that could possibly be helped uh, not only by our energy saving, but also by the disclosure of new technologies that are being hidden. And I attended Stephen Greer's lecture here at the university, and he's, he's on the same wavelength about these new technologies that could possibly save the planet, uh, technologies we've had for a long time that do not requ require fossil fuel. And I just attended a, a lecture, uh, a book signing actually by Al Gore and took photos of him and, and, and thanked him very much for his commitment. We need people that have that kind of commitment uh, with real information to come Come forth because this is also a manner of ecological saving of the planet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, you spoke about the uh, the new book. When do you expect the new book to uh, be available for, for the listeners? Well, the manuscript will be submitted in January. And uh, uh, how does one speak to a ball of light? Uh, um, it's a political implications. For future contact, will be coming out. I'm hoping at Roswell at, in uh, in July of of uh, next year, 2007, because it's going to be the 60th anniversary. Um, my book did come out. My first book came out in Roswell, and I'm hoping that it'll be there. That I'll release it, and and you know, with all my colleagues, be able to to um, give another um, another little bit of of something to the to the world as far as giving them my research uh, that I've been doing so they can put together the whole entire picture. Exactly, exactly. Awesome. Well, I can't wait for the new book to come out. Uh, the book, your present book, uh, is called Connecting the Dots, and that's available uh, pretty much everywhere, right? Amazon and Amazon, and all, and yeah. all that mm -hmm. stuff. Your website is paulaharris.it, and let me spell that out for you. It's P-A-O-L-A. H-A-R-R-I-S dot I-T. That's the website, and you can find out tons more information there, I'm sure, correct? Yes, and I also have a new one that's coming out. It's Paula Harris at exopolitics.com. So that will be only exopolitics on papers. It'll be papers on exopolitics and thesis statements and so forth uh, dealing with just exopolitics. Oh, wow. What's the, what's the address for that again? Paula Harris, Paula Harris at exo, Paula Harris, exopolitics.com. Okay, all one word? All one word. Awesome, mm -hmm. awesome. Well, Paula, I really want to thank you for being on the show. Um, like I said, you opened the door for me to, to talk to Monsignor Balducci, and you were just, just amazingly kind and generous and welcoming to me as a newcomer to the field and as a young person in the field. It's very intimidating when you first get into it, and, and you were just so welcoming and friendly and nice and, and great to talk to you at the X conference. And uh, I'm just so glad we finally got a chance to sit down and talk at length and have you on the show and, and bring your amazing research out to the listeners of the North America Audio um, who have been asking for you to be on the show for quite some time. They're going to be very excited when they hear the interview. 
Um, like I said, I owe you a huge debt of gratitude. A lot of what you do is what I do, and that's talk to the big names in ufology and, and some of the lesser-known people and all the great researchers and try and tie it all together. I definitely patterned a lot of my work after your work because I admire your style so much. It's just been great to have you on the show, and hopefully this is just the beginning of more adventures for you and me uh, in the UFO field. Thanks a lot, Tim. I'm so thrilled that you're in this field, and I have high hopes that more young people will get involved because it's so, it's the most important question uh, for our species and for the planet. That does it for the Paula Harris portion of this expanded edition of Manal of America Audio. Big, big, super huge thanks to Paula Harris for coming on the show, sitting down with us, giving us so much time and insight, and really I think we just barely scratched the surface of discussing the UFO phenomenon. If you want more information on Paula Harris, check out paulaharris.it. Let me spell that for you. www.paolaharris.it. And now, let's just roll right into the debut of Ben All of America Audio listener feedback. Jamail! is here! Yes, the little fancy music is a sign that it is time for the debut of the Ben All of America Audio listener feedback portion of the show with an email from Richard in Swansea, Wales, UK. I've corresponded with Richard before. He's a great guy, so let's rock it out with his letter here. Will you be doing any reporting on the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference you're going to? I'm interested in what Richard Dolan has to say about his new book. I'm about halfway into Volume 1 and looking forward to reading the second volume. Also, I enjoyed your latest show. The idea that the chupacabra is some kind of insect was interesting, and I think maybe the more likely. I know the show is called Been All of America, but it's nice that you have people on the show talking about what is going on in other countries. It proves that UFOs are not just some kind of Anglo-American cultural thing. Keep up the good work and have fun at the conference. All the best. Richard in Swansea, Wales, UK. Well, thank you very much for the letter, Richard. Uh, yes, I will be doing some reporting on the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. I expect to have a full report filed at benallofamerica.com probably on the Tuesday following the conference. So stop by benallofamerica.com for that. And also, I will be bringing my trusty recorder with me, not the musical instrument, but the interview recorder, and I will be talking to some of the people who will be speaking at the conference. I've looked over the speaker list, and uh, I'm putting together questions for just about everybody who is going to be there as a speaker. And depending on who will sit down and talk to me and who has time, uh, those will be the interviews we can get. So hopefully I'm aiming at maybe at, at worst five, at best ten. So somewhere in there, expect that number of interviews. Um, how we decide to release them is undetermined at this point, depending on how long they go. Like I said, we don't know exactly how many interviews we'll have. If it's a ton of time, we may do a little spin-off series, kind of like the X-Conference sessions, or if it's you know, manageable, if it's like three hours or four hours, maybe it'll be spread out over the course of a couple weeks worth of episodes of Banal of America Audio Season 2. I haven't really decided that sort of thing, but... I would expect the interviews to be airing sometime at BenAllOfAmerica.com around the end of December, January time period. 
roughly. Regarding Richard Dolan, uh, yes, I will be sure to find out any information going on about the release of the second volume of his book. Uh, what I heard was that it would be released in time for the conference, available at the conference, or something like that. So I'll find out the full scoop on the Richard Dolan UFOs in the National Security State Volume 2 book, and that'll be included in the report at banalofamerica.com. Uh, regarding the international nature of Ben All of America's podcast series, yes, I really appreciate you that you point that out. Um, we strive to get as many different voices from around the world on Ben All of America Audio. We're in talks with people from various other countries to appear on the show in the near future. You just heard a lengthy interview with Paula Harris where we discussed the European ufology scene last week with Scott Corrales talking about the Latin American ufology scene. We had Peter Robbins on last year. He's done a lot of touring in Japan. He had a lot to say about the Japanese ufology scene. We're going to try and delve into uh, tying together the international strands of ufology here on Banal of America Audio. That pretty much covers all the points here from Richard's question. Richard, in Swansea, Wales, UK, thank you very much for writing. If you want your letter to be read on a future edition of Banal of America Audio listener feedback... Simply send your email to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. It's in the top right-hand corner of the screen. That will put you on the road to getting your letter read on Banal of America Audio listener feedback. Moving right along, I want to thank the fine folks at banalofamerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website. I'm talking about Chiron, Leslie, R. Lee, Joe V., Ralph Molesworth. Much of what you hear and see at BanalofAmerica.com would not be possible without the help and support of these fine folks. Check out their columns at BanalofAmerica.com. Check out their affiliated websites. The Debris Field, and that's thedebrisfield.blogspot.com, Chiron.net, K-H-Y-R-O-N.net, and UFOBits.blogspot.com. Those are the affiliated websites of the fine folks who write for BanalofAmerica.com. Check out their websites. And, of course, don't forget BanalofAmerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time Banal of America audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series, click the PayPal button at BanalofAmerica.com, make a donation, and help pay the bills here at Banal of America Audio. Up next now, as we close out here, the expanded edition of Ben All of America Audio. It is an excerpt from the May 27, 2006 edition of Ben All of America Audio, Season 1, with our guest, Ryan Wood. Ryan and his father, Robert Wood, are the brains behind the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. You can find out more information at www.ufoconference.com. That's November 10th to the 12th in Las Vegas, Nevada. Be there or be square. And here in this excerpt from our interview with Ryan Wood from last year, we discuss what the goals are for the conference, how it started, who will be speaking at the conference next weekend, and some of the topics they're going to be talking about. This should give you some insight into what will be going on in Las Vegas next weekend when Banal of America Audio is not on the air. Here is Ryan Wood previewing the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4. The UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. This is uh, you and your dad put this on. How did it come about? Uh, how has it evolved? What's it like running your own conference? Uh, tell me about the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. Before you do, I've heard 
just amazingly good things about the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference, and I'm not I'm not kissing your butt here. This is the truth because everybody I talk to who's gone always says it's awesome. All the people who are on the show who speak there always tell me you got to check out the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. Sounds like the place to be as far as conferences goes. It's uh, one of the the best of, of the conferences out there that I've heard of. So tell me about it. How to come about? Like I said, how has it evolved? Yeah. And, you know, what's it like running it? Well, um, it sort of evolved because I became personally disgusted with going to the other conferences and and getting a, a cross section of of goo. Uh, <laughs> you know, a couple of talks were great, and the rest of it was just like, oh my god, how in the world did they ever let this guy on the stage? <laughs> uh, and and so I said, hey, I'm just going to make my own conference, and I'm going to focus on what I consider the the core thing, and that is the crash retrievals. Um, and so that's what I decided to do, and uh, we're coming up here on the fourth one, November 10th through 12th, uh, uh, in 06 at the uh, Tuscany in Las Vegas, and we should have three, 400 people there. Uh, we've got a pretty good lineup this year. We typically have um, at least four, sometimes as many as six different crash retrievals that are talked about just by one speaker and then some other aspects. Um, this year we got Stan Friedman talking about, uh, you know, why UFOs crash. Um, uh, Michael Sala is going to give an overview of crashed UFO black operations. Um, we typically have a uh, speaker panel uh, and press conference on Friday night, and everybody gives a little five-minute summary. Um, Rich Dolan will be there and have part two of his, uh, you know, two-volume set, UFOs in the National Security State from 1973 to 2006. He's um, working hot and heavy on that right now, and yep. by the fall we'll have it done. Um, Paul Shatskin, uh, who's done a couple of biographies, and he's working on uh, T-Towns and Brown, a famous sort of anti-gravity, electrogravitics um, person, and I'm going to have him talking about the linkages of of him to the UFO field and to the government and so forth. Uh, he, I typically have one sort of in-depth biography of an interesting person that was either murdered by MJ-12 or relevant to yeah. this this process. Mm -hmm. um, I'm giving a talk on a brand new crash retrieval that's not in my book. It's one of the mass, the new, um, the new eleven that I've got, uh, and I hope to have some real breathtaking uh, info about that. I mean, it's a good story right now, but with a little more research, I, I may have hardware. Awesome. So that'll be, that should light people up. Awesome. Um, and then uh, Michael Lindemann, um, who's talking about scenarios of contact, he, he's been a facilitator of, uh, when he worked for Joe Firmage, of a group of 20 people or so that went over a couple of weekends that talked about scenarios of contact, and he'll be reporting the results of that uh, um, high-level investigation. They had a lot of military generals and scientists, and um, it was a very interesting 
um, uh, event and, and you know, why they're contacting or what the implications of contact are uh, in an open society, uh, I think is an important discussion. Yeah. Um, and then I'm still working on a keynote speech, um, trying to get some people. Uh, my dad and Nick Redfern uh, are going to be talking about crashed UFOs and biowarfare. Um, uh, my dad is uh, finishing up his first book on uh, alien viruses. Oh, boy. And, um, and that should be very interesting. Um, Frank Faschino is going to talk about the Braxton County Monster. He's completely redone his book. Uh, he was had a disappointing experience with his publisher, mm-hmm. and um, they hacked through a bunch of it and screwed it all up. And, oh man! Uh, uh, so he's he's redone it and, and made it a much more scholarly, stronger book. Awesome. Uh, Linda Howe will be back to give an update on her 53 and some other. Uh, crash disc informants and so forth. Uh, I got Bruce McAbee to come talk about the El Indio Guerrero, December 6, 1950 UFO crash, and I'm helping him with, with that, um, getting some more data, new data people haven't seen. Um, Matthew, Matthew Thune is going to talk about the uh, Lumini Island incident off of uh, of an underwater Roswell event. Here's here's a new one. Um, Peter Merlin. Oh, um, he's uh, his talks uh, after the fire. How the government responds to top secret crashes. Oh, he Lord. is um, basically a crashed airplane expert. Yeah, he, he's uh, he's been to hundreds of crashes, including uh, the. Um, Stealth fighter that crashed outside Bakersfield, and he's giving a talk on on sort of uh, what they do and how they respond when something important crashes. Um, how's the how's the site sanitized? Did they remove every trace mm-hmm. and so forth? He's an aerospace archaeologist, um, and so it, it should be very interesting because he's. You know, he's not in the UFO field per se, but uh, he's bringing an important uh, skill dimension to this topic. Yeah. Um, and so that's uh, that's, that's a- the cross section of our our conference. And uh, ufoconference.com has all the data. And if you go to the website, you can register online or fax it in and see the. Uh, yeah, and that's ufoconference.com. Yeah, ufoconference.com. And with that, we wrap up the special expanded edition of the All of America Audio. Big thanks to Paula Harris, Ryan Wood, Richard in Swansea, Wales, UK, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Ralph Molesworth of com, And, of course, all the great listeners we have out there the world over. As I said, no audio next week. We return in two weeks with Peter Davenport of the National UFO Reporting Center. There'll be a preview at banalofamerica.com sometime in the next two weeks. Until you hear from me then, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.